Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. End of intermission, part two. So we have just listened to Paul in an interview where he sounded fairly even keeled, not despondent like we've been led to believe, not like an overbearing egomaniac. He sounded relaxed, sane, maybe a little tired. Yes, and he also didn't sound full of false bravado. Like he was puffing his chest out, but secretly falling apart on the inside. He, He sounded fairly candid, even though he did sound a little flat and exhausted. Yeah, I was surprised that he sounded as good as he did, given what we know, which is that fundamentally, Paul McCartney in September 1969 was in a very tough position for a few important reasons. First, all year he had been on a creative high and and had been performing at the top of his game, which is obviously fantastic, but there are certain things that go along with that. There's inspiration, but there's also obsessive drive that can alienate people. There's huge confidence, but also proportional insecurity. There's positive attention and recognition, but also the jealousy and outside competition that go along with it. And all of these are at play at this time. Yeah. He was also in the extremely unenviable position of being the only Beatle who could see through Alan Klein's (laughs) bizarre magnetism. Right. And this clear-headedness, of course, put him on the outs with the other Beatles, which resulted in the creation of this very painful and ultimately destructive three-to-one dynamic. So these are the main reasons that Paul was in this incredibly difficult position at this time. He's on this creative high, so driven and productive. People are reacting to him. He's the only one who sees through this, you know, crooked manager. And all of a sudden, he's the odd man out in what had always been an incredibly tight foursome. It would be hard to overstate the impact of this three-to-one dynamic. It made him feel, according to Paul himself, vulnerable and paranoid, which we hypothesize exacerbated his tendency, when threatened, to put on a cocky, arrogant front and become more controlling and more overbearing, which in turn probably made him seem more inauthentic, self-centered, and most importantly, insensitive. The other outcome of the three-to-one dynamic is that it really impacted the telling of the story, which was subsequently told from the point of view of the majority, 
John, George, and Ringo, and their view of Paul as an uncaring egomaniac took hold in the narrative and the public's imagination. Paul's tried to counter this. He's long defended his opposition to Alan Klein and portrayed himself as the savior of the Beatles' legacy rather than the egotistical, hard-hearted villain who cared more about money and fame than his own bandmates. But after decades of Paul's point of view gaining no traction, he eventually tried a new approach, this time emphasizing his hurt and emotional devastation at the loss of the Beatles. And that characterization did gain traction. The role of Paul as the soft, sad, heartbroken one humanized him to the public and finally gained him some sympathy in the story. Yeah, yeah, right. The public is willing to feel sorry for Paul as long as he was the victim deserted by his beloved John Lennon. But what the popular narrative prohibits is turning Paul into a hero. Right. So the story has been shaped by these two conflicting points of view, that of the majority versus Paul's point of view. And although there are elements of truth to both, there is another critical factor that needs to be taken into account, without which the story does not make sense. And that is that in 1969, Paul McCartney was one of the world's biggest superstars. He was beloved, celebrated, and the most popular member of the world's most popular band. And that made him powerful. But it also made him a target, even within the Beatles. And this critical issue has somehow gotten lost, but it's an absolutely integral part of the story because it helps us understand the actions and motivations of both McCartney and those around him. Right. So taking all these factors into account, we need to try to get to a more sophisticated story that reconciles these very divergent viewpoints. We'll do this by considering what might have been going on with Paul at this time, how he came across to others in the band, and accurately portraying his value as an artist at that time. It's time to put the tropes on trial. Number one, was Paul a self-obsessed egomaniac? Number two, was Paul difficult to work with and undesirable as a creative collaborator? And number three, were the Beatles Paul's whole world? Let's find out. Was Paul a total egomaniac? In terms of the egomaniac thing, honestly, like, I'm willing to just concede that one. Like, yeah. I mean, like, all signs basically point to, yeah, he had a huge ego in 1969. I mean, you know, John referred to both of them, him and and Paul, both as egomaniacs. George complained about John and Paul being egomaniacs. Ray Connolly said Paul had a huge ego at that time. Ray also said that John and Yoko had huge egos too. Not to undermine the Paul point, because he does say that too. And even Paul said, I was a cocky sod before yeah. the Beatles breakup, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So even he, he's like, ego? 
well, sure. Of course. Why wouldn't I <laughs> yeah. have a big ego? Have you seen my body of work? Yes, also exactly. Also my ass and also my face <laughs> and my voice. So anyways, of course, yes. Needless to say, I had a massive ego. Yeah. But... That that one just doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, again, to say to say that like the biggest rock star on the planet has a big ego is like go fuck off. Like yeah, that's seriously. such a dumb thing to say. Well, he earned it. You know what I mean? That like, is really that that's the only point that anybody is arguing because nobody disputes that John Lennon was a raging egomaniac. Yeah, but they all think that he is allowed to. Yeah. You know, it'll almost be problematic if he wasn't hugely confident and cocky <laughs> at this point in the Beatles' career when he's well, just like he ready. wouldn't have gotten to where he is. He would not have succeeded. That's right. Paul himself even says that he did an interview with Ray, Ray Connolly in 1968, and he kind of he said, "Well, I didn't even realize I had faults until you know recently," <laughs> and so. It's problematic when Paul, that's Paul's attempt to be modest, you know? So there is a little bit of a lack of awareness. And I think that Paul probably is quite spoiled at this point. You know, everybody caters to him and the world kind of revolves around him, as they do for John. All the Beatles. And Yoko and all of the Beatles, exactly. Yeah. But I think that there's a few things that are sort of packed in or wrapped into this idea that, you know, he's full of himself, which we're like, yep, okay, he was. But there's also this idea of like egomania there is this idea of he only cared about himself like he was self-centered and that he was insensitive to everyone else and you know so that's sort of the negative side like Paul these some of these could be true for Paul yeah yeah sure they're I mean they're not coming out of thin air <laughs> right <laughs> right exactly exactly I think that's what we need to reconcile is that there is some, like, a lot of people say this about Paul, that he was really cocky, especially cocky at this time, you know? And, and whereas when you see it from Paul's perspective, and even when we listen to Paul, he doesn't sound that cocky. And when we hear his perspective, it's like, of course he was fighting against Klein. Of course he was doing all the things. Of course he was pushing the albums to get out. And thank God he did. You know, like, these are not... The um, right. the the actions of somebody who's on an ego trip, they're the actions of somebody who was really trying to manage, manage and save something. Yeah. You know, but like you said, he is viewed this way. And I think we need to reconcile that. But again, I think that they all were. He's not the only one. And I suspect that even George did at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, most of the fan accounts, the uh, Meet the Beatles for Real and and what have you, all said that George was surfing his own dick in 1969 <laughs> thinking, he's thinking yeah. he was the best george is the one that they describe as being incredibly arrogant at that time yeah which i sort of get that sense too you know you see pictures of him and he's like a man on a mission at that point which again good for him i don't begrudge yeah. him yeah. that like he's got some yeah, he's... awesome songs out Exactly. But it's okay for Paul to be like this too. You know, like if part of that, part and parcel of that is that he's very sure of himself, he's sure of his creative vision, that he's really focused on what he's doing. I mean, you know, that is sort of a mark of a great artist as well. And, you know, nobody says that Mozart should have been nicer. So, Well, the, well, the other thing, it's, it's weaponized against women all the time. You know, it's like you can't be too full of yourself. You can't be too, you know, oh, proud totally. and all that sort of stuff. It, again, it's a what's good for the goose is not good for the gander, even though Paul's a guy. Um, 
he's treated with a lot of the bullshit rules that women are faced with. Right. I think it's not so much that he was an egomaniac. It's that he was self-centered. Like he was so into himself and his own music at this time that he couldn't see beyond himself. I mean, that is kind of the other side of, you know, being a, a great musician is that you're very focused on the stuff that you're creating because great stuff's coming out of you. So again, this is not necessarily to give Paul a pass. It's just to say that some of these issues are just a function of the fact that he is very creatively inspired and driven at this point. Well, you know? I agree. I agree too. And I will, I will also say that I, I take no issue if, if George is like, Okay, well, uh, there's no room for this band, clearly. I wish it was um, approached more impartially. Yes. And it was phrased more like, well, there was too much talent in that band, which uh, I have heard maybe one or two people say, which I think is the best assessment. I mean, it was already crammed full with John and Paul and then a junior George. But like, if George is going to step up his songwriting, we definitely don't have it. That's how you end up with the White Album, because you have so much material, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to be fair, John did say that a number of times after the September meeting. There's too many songwriters with three of us, like George stepping up into a full-blown, like, equal space songwriter. I think he's right. Well, except for the fact that John is not writing any real songs at that time. Well, yeah, that's true. John's not really producing all that much. Like, it did require kind of a reshuffling, and th- that's hard. Right. It is. It's hard for Paul to step down when Paul's on top of his game. Well, that's always my point is like, you cannot reasonably expect him to be demoted. That's not okay. You have no right to expect him to accept that. Yeah. And like, I get that George wants to ascend. I, I'm a, I'm 100% behind him there. Yeah. But you can't ask Paul to take a lesser role. So again, I don't know why this is Paul's fucking fault. Well, and I agree with you. George was really coming up and it was a difficult situation for him. But like, you know, Paul's at the top of his game at this point, And you can't blame Paul for just wanting to keep putting his mute. Like that's really right. what he should be doing at this point. If, the, if George's predicament is he has too much material and he can't get it on the Beatles yeah. albums, then like he should go solo, like put out a fucking solo album. Just to give them their due, George and John were kind of floating this idea that George was like, maybe I should do a solo record. No, he actually didn't do it until Paul quit. Yeah. So I think the best situation for them at that time probably would have been for everybody to do a solo album yep. for them to get their feet, you know, to get their bearing as solo artists yep. and then to come back and make a Beatles album maybe in late 70 or 71, which I think was probably John's plan to be. Well, I, I do too. So I think just so. to what we said in the last episode, that would have allowed them to all sort of individuate, you know, figure out who they were as independent artists. Um, and then come back together. I think the, the problem is, is that John went so, got emotional and went overboard. Yep. And, you know, and hurt Paul too much. And I think Paul would have been okay with that if they didn't have Klein. And if there wasn't this constant pressure on Paul to, you know, submit or step down. And so I can imagine Paul almost being a little bit more cocky because of that. Like, you're not going to push me down. And especially with the three to one, that also makes me think that he might have even come off cockier because 
he felt a little under attack or a little bit isolated. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 for sure. Like if they're out on the recess and the, the three of them are like glaring at him and whispering yeah. and like occasionally throwing a rock at him or something. <laughs> yeah, you know? That's like, basically it, yeah. How's he going to feel after a while? Well, I think he's going to feel insecure and paranoid and vulnerable, which are things that he has said too that, you know, I think that um, maybe professionally, Paul feels strong, but, but, you know, bands are a mixture of professional and interpersonal. And so this is a really kind of toxic brew at this time. And so, you know, so. And a lot of their, they still have like juvenile dynamics to a certain extent. Yeah. Like underneath everything. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And John is a fucking gang leader. We know that too. Yes. Yes, exactly. Paul's never been in John's gang. So there's that issue. No. Paul does not join gangs. He does not. He is uh, really independent. Like he's always been independent. I don't think he even likes to have followers. Even somebody like um, um, Pete Townsend, he said that John was easier to be with because John would be like, "Yeah, let's all just agree you're below me," and then everybody relaxes because I'm the, I'm they the were star. Like, I'm the star. I will, be the, I will be the star for this evening. Everybody, just watch me go. And Pete was like, yeah, "Then we all relaxed because we were like, yeah, you are the star, John.'" And he said that Paul was much more difficult to interact with because Paul would be like, we're the same. And he was kind of like, it was really uncomfortable because I don't think that we're the same. You know what I mean? So, you know, in some ways, Paul wants to be, he doesn't want to be followed and he doesn't want to be He's listening and trying to make a connection with you. Which again is kind of counter to this idea that he's thinks he's better than everybody else. It's complicated and Paul is complicated. I feel like something that people do, they listen to the get back tapes and they're like, oh, okay, well, Paul's not really doing anything bad. Um, I mean, I guess. (laughs) Right. But clearly George is super upset about something. (laughs) Right, right. When we listen, you know, as outside observers, the story does not quite come to life when you listen. I think that all of this is baggage between them. So little tiny infractions seem huge to them or annoying to them. But to us, yeah. But because that is how he felt and how, the story that he told, that that's come to define Paul. And exactly. that's the interesting thing is about looking at the tapes right now and just being like, okay, I was led to believe this person was this way. And now we've got the evidence of the Magra reels. And, you know, to me, (laughs) that idea was potentially greatly overblown. And there are a number of dynamics. We sort of have to parse these. Like, yes, that's fair that George felt like that. And there probably is a lot of stuff under the surface that we can't really, and there's a history, you know? Yes, exactly, exactly. But objectively, You know, if you're writing a book, do you want to be like, and Paul was a monster when you go and look at him and he's really okay in the studio, just trying to encourage the band, then, you know, then it's good to have that perspective. If I was coming in as somebody who knew nothing about the Beatles, I don't know if I would have read that. I would have known that Paul was quite confident, but I don't know if I would have read like egomaniac (laughs) into Paul McCartney from that. Would you? I mean, I don't think so. Although, you know, again, I have affection for him, so I am not really inclined to think that. And also I like 
controlling people. So it's not bothersome to me. You know what I mean? Like, right. Well, I think that maybe that's baked into my opinion too, is I see that as a good thing, you know, that if I was watching, I would be like, Oh, cool. That person's really competent and, you know, sure of themselves. That might be true for their particular interpersonal dynamic. Like that, that might be very much how George feels and, you know, might be true from his perspective, right? It's the truth from where he stands. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the, you can hang Paul with that rope. So we're trying to reconcile the way Paul has been stereotyped versus reality. Because it's not fair or even true to define Paul according to his bandmates' grievances. And while there may be some validity to their point of view, it is how they saw things, their perspective should not define Paul because there are other points of view to consider, including his own and a more objective one. So as we've just discussed, it seems entirely plausible that Paul was massively confident and cocky and arrogant and full of himself at the time, but so were they all in one way or another. So while egomaniac is the blanket term they used to indict him, I suspect what's wrapped up in this egomaniac label and was really more bothersome to them was a sense that Paul seemed superior, self-involved, inflexible, and most importantly, insensitive to their feelings, which is a big issue because they aren't just bandmates, you know, they're, they're longtime friends. So their issues, I think, had more to do with his interactions with them and the interpersonal than egotism. And also at play may have been the fact that Paul sometimes got so obsessed by bringing his vision to life that he forgot about the interpersonal and inadvertently trampled over, you know, whoever got in his way. I I think it has to be that because the thing is, is that we don't have any other evidence of anything else. And yet there seems to be a very deep hurt and resentment on George's part and also on John's part. part. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, George is definitely of the opinion from everything that I've, you know, read and understand that Paul couldn't see beyond himself, that he was so obsessed only with himself that he couldn't, see, you know, beyond his own interests and his own songs. And, you know, as George said, when Paul focused on you and worked on your song, he was amazing. He gave a lot and he was the person that you wanted. Like he probably gave more than anybody else. But he oh, also, yes. but he also demanded yes. more than anybody else, you know? Well, he, he demanded more than any, yeah, exactly. But also I do think that Paul was a bit obsessive about his vision. I think that it kind of just overwhelmed him. And, you know, he fought for it so hard Yes. that after he got his way, he's kind of like, oh shit. And also I think Paul would, I think, you know, afterwards he might be like, oh God, wow. Yeah. I probably was. I probably yeah, did go sure. really rough on him, but you know what? It was worth it. And I think George would be like, wow, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It. Okay. You know, that is the reason for a lot of the perfectionism in the Beatles. So it's a trade-off, you know, that they've got this incredibly high level of quality because Paul was always pushing to go further, further, further. Paul would be like, you know what? 
we got the Beatles, we got Abbey Road, right, exactly. you know, like, is that not enough? And I think the other three might be like, no, you know, like our relationships ended up yeah. in tatters. Well, I don't know about Ringo, but yeah, John and George. Yeah. I yeah. think Ringo's probably like, you know what? Yes, Paul, you're right. I'm glad we have Abbey Road. Well, I think the other two are, I'm sure they are glad that they have Abbey Road too. I feel like George was like, okay, then fine. I see where I stand with you. It's not that important then. Okay, fine. But that seems to be the issue that Paul understands later, like in the early 80s or mid 80s, we've got Paul talking about the fact that, you know, I guess I was just less sensitive, you know, <laughs> than them. I've come to understand I was hurting people left, right and center, and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Because he's so in his head. Right. And I mean, they feel that he is prioritizing the music over them. But I, I, I think he might be prioritizing the well, music well you know what that's a good point a lot of great artists are incredibly focused on their work I mean that's how they yeah get that level of work well so. and, but but and also what we've been talking about all for the whole episode is like it's in danger right now like the Beatles are in danger and he's trying to protect them and preserve them so yeah yeah like he's in real like right. defensive mode Hull is in fight mode and it stops he stops being able to connect or focus on them during this year there's a conversation where george is like i tried to reach you last night and he seems to be really upset that he couldn't reach paul because paul had taken his phone off the the hook hook. Yeah. yeah and then paul was like oh sorry so i think that we sometimes assume that their relationships are worse than it is. Like, obviously, George can't sleep. And this wasn't like, you know, it seemed like George just wanted to talk. It it didn't seem like I wanted to yell at you. It was like George wanted to reach Paul, and he couldn't, and it upset him. And so, you know, you understand that they are so close and connected, even though they may be fighting at this point as well. Well, and also... George is having a lot of problems at this time too. That's the other thing that that we really need to take into account is that his yep. his mother is is very ill, and yep. his marriage is falling apart. And like those are two of the worst, biggest things that can happen in your life. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. Like he and he sought he sought Paul out when he found out his mother's diagnosis. Well, exactly. I just think his focus is elsewhere. And they're like, I need you to acknowledge me. They need the very human things from Paul. And and I would say this three to one scenario probably exacerbated everything because Paul is probably feeling a bit ostracized and he doesn't know what's going on. Like, yes. It would make Paul feel insecure. So instead yes. of being able to step up and realizing they all individually want him to be their friend and you know acknowledge them musically and that kind of thing, now he thinks they're against him. Yes. And that's a terrible position to be in. Like it kind of makes sense if his reaction is to retreat a little bit. If you're feeling the, 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 the gang forming yep. around you, you're going to yep. back off. But I think the idea that he would be egotistical, I think would be a little little bit of posturing. Like you cannot look weak yes, when right. you're the one person fighting the other three. You know, there's a there's a lot of bravado in that situation. Yes. So, yeah. you know, he could be compensating cuz the thing is if Paul is totally relaxed, he can be very generous, you know? So yes. if there is this element of he's not connecting with us anymore. Here's another thing. I think 
a big problem is Paul hugely underestimates how much he matters to them. And I think the whole fandom does. Paul, for some reason, at this point, doesn't think that, you know, that he is as impactful. And again, the 1980s comments about, you know, when he's like, I apparently was just walking around hurting people. It's like, yeah, because people really cared about what you said and did, Paul. They were watching. You think they didn't care, but they were, you know? Yeah. He doesn't really realize how much he matters to people. And so he doesn't realize mm-hmm. how much he impacts people. You know, we've got George Martin coming up and saying, you hurt me. And Ringo said, oh yeah, you hurt me too. And Paul's just shocked that he's hurt everybody. I just think he gets tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. I do think so. But there's also this idea that, ah, oh, what I do won't bother anyone. Maybe it's because Paul isn't necessarily bothered with other, with yes, what other people yeah. do. That, you know, that he thinks other people won't mind if he does this kind of thing. So it could be that. Or it could be that he just is inconsiderate. Okay, but everybody notices that Paul doesn't bitch about the other Beatles or about other people in his life. Like he does not sit around and go, he did this thing and that was so insensitive. And then he did this other thing. And John would always say mocking shit. It was extremely unprofessional and very disrespectful. And like, how was I supposed to thrive in an environment like that? Like he never says all that stuff. He doesn't call out their bad behavior. So we don't even know what their bad behavior is. We know what Paul's bad behavior is because they flag it and complain about it. And, you know, publicly, publicly. These are the options, right? It's either Paul is as terrible, egotistical, mean, and insensitive, and just John and George are the real heroes because they have the balls to say it out loud and call him on his bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that Paul never does the same in return is because John and George never do anything wrong, okay? That's take number one, which is like the popular take, I guess. That's the least likely to be reality because it's far-fetched and dumb. B is that Paul is just a nicer, better person and would never say things like that in public because it's unseemly and because it's tacky. Well, we have support for that. You know, uh, Paul's brother says that, that he just chooses not to air his dirty laundry in public. And and I, I I think Paul has even said that, that there's different ways, but that's you know, he doesn't want to do that, which right. I appreciate. Which we, uh, right. We do sort of get the sense of that. That's Paul's style, yeah. right, is to is to not do that shit in public. But then there there is like a third option, which, you know, might be is he just isn't, you know, accumulating a list of little hurts and, and uh, little transgressions that everybody's made. Like, he's just not that type of person. Like, it, stuff bounces off of I, him. I, I do think that I think that it's B and C. I really do. Yes. You know, he says that and, you know, the, the meetings were awful and they were terrible. So it's not like he doesn't feel them, but I think that he yeah, lets them yeah. bounce off him a little bit. Like he doesn't make meaning of them. I think he's kind of like, oh, God, there's all this shit going on. Let's get past it and move onwards because he's not making meaning out of all of their behaviors. He's not holding on to them forever, you know. That's just like a fundamentally different type of person. I think Paul's insensitivity and lack of consideration eventually had enormous repercussions for him, especially with John. I think that John really respected the bounds of their partnership until he didn't with Yoko. But I think that it was something very precious and private to him and that he was possessive of it in ways that Paul maybe was as well, except for the fact that Paul did things like he would drop by 
you know, uh, Donovan's and play a song for him. Or, and I think John would have had an issue with that because he yes. assumed that their partnership was sacred and he respected that. And, you know, again, the story with, with George Martin, where Paul was desperate to get She's Leaving Home so much. He was so excited about it that when George couldn't do it immediately, he went and found Mike Leander. And I think that has more to do with how excited Paul was than what he thought of George Martin. But he should have been aware. Like there was a little bit of a lack of yes, respect. For sure. There is for a sure. lack of respect for these people. And I think that Paul wasn't always sensitive to people's feelings and it made them feel like they didn't matter. When Paul's yes. just like, I'll just do the, the guitar solo or I'll just do the drumming, that communicates yeah, yeah, to yeah. George and Ringo that you're not really necessary. I don't really appreciate what you're doing. That's very hurtful. The fact that Paul doesn't understand that when he's 24 is one thing. The fact that he's like 44 or whatever yeah. and still is surprised is that means like something is something's not connecting, you know, in his brain. There's this, like he there's should this know. quote that I, I really like. Andrew Lug Oldham says that Paul doesn't realize that he is the center of attention. Which like, he always was. Which he yeah. always yeah. was. And I mean, I think that's an incredible observation that Paul doesn't realize that everybody's watching him. And I think when you don't realize that, you maybe underestimate the impact of your actions. This is the actual quote. Paul never seemed to realize he was center stage, which he always was. And perhaps that was a saving grace for his sanity as the world smothered the Beatles with its approval. But I think that all these issues are tied. All these people all want to feel really valued. And, you know, when Paul just sort of takes over things, that's when people feel like, oh, you don't care about me. Like that just becomes too hard for people. Yes. And in John's case, you know, if the if this happens enough times to John, then it it does make sense that he's like, okay, well, let me give you a taste of your own medicine Absolutely. when he brings Yoko in. <laughs> Absolutely, I always see Yoko as as a taste of your own medicine, like, and it does work to a certain extent because it does upset Paul. It does, like, visibly and right away, like it <laughs> it has an immediate effect. Paul does react and does not react, you know, well. Right. And I wish Paul would have recognized he's giving me a taste of my own medicine. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, that probably wasn't cool when I was, you know. Taking yesterday around and like auditioning it to like <laughs> yes. everybody in London. Yes. Or, or doing the family way with George Martin. Oops, did you want to join that, John? And I think that John was right to call him on it. I just think that it, unfortunately, that should have been quickly resolved, but it didn't and it spiraled and. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then it just became, you know, law. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it made me think of a quote uh, from Nat Weiss and um, who was, I guess, a business partner of um, Brian Epstein. And. He knew Linda, and so he observed Linda and, and Paul when they were getting together. And this is a quote from him. He says, uh, he said, Paul's whole demeanor, that cocky defensive shield he wore like armor, melted away, and for a moment, he seemed barely human. <laughs> so 
you know, there's some interesting ideas in there. You know, this this idea of the, the cocky defensive shield he wore like armor. You know, we often hear about John's armor, the idea that John yeah. is so prickly and aggressive and tough and, you know, sort of um, a bully on the outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that that is like covering up his, his tender emotions. Whereas here we've got some insight from Weiss saying that Paul's armor was really a cockiness, you know, and that with Linda it melted away. But that's what other people see is a cockiness. Well, and I think the takeaway from, from Weiss, he says for a minute he was human. I take that to mean human as opposed to superhuman. Exactly. Like well because he was vulnerable I think and right. open with her that right. all of a sudden if if he's un, if he really likes Linda which obviously he did then there would be some insecurity you know and some vulnerability which like you said when he seems like the superhuman he didn't seem to have. Right. An invulnerability is what he's he's talking about, not human as opposed to robot. I mean, there is a little bit of that idea packed into, you know, Paul being um, this cocky defensive shield is that, you know, he, he doesn't have a soul or he's a robot or there's there's something that's sort of included in that. I think one way to reconcile this difference in views of Paul being ultra cocky and then the other side of Paul being like a good guy who's really struggling with this situation and feeling vulnerable is that if Paul in this three to one situation is feeling very vulnerable, which according to him, he was, his account is that he was feeling incredibly paranoid and vulnerable and insecure in this situation, that if that's how he's feeling and his armor is cockiness, that it could be the case that he became cockier as a result, you know, that he wore all of his armor during 1969. And that's what the others were seeing, right? Well, I definitely think that that is the case. (laughs) I mean, I definitely think that is a natural response that he has developed over time. And at some point, it's just, it just kicks in. It's, It's like an automatic thing. Um, That's right. Much the same way that John's response, when he feels threatened, he's aggressive. I think Paul's is... Yeah, he lashes out. Yes. Yes. Where I think Paul's is to be confident and to stick his nose in the air and be aloof and be like, whatever, you know. Right, right. Exactly. Like, people do say that it's this, the confidence was an innate trait of Paul, you know, that right. there's stories of the fact that he really was confident, but there is insecurity. And in I think that Paul underneath it all is highly, highly sensitive. And so, you know, if at this time he is really battling, but also feels very insecure, you know, the idea that these guys are constantly having conversations about him, even if they're not, he thinks they are, you know, and I think that that would just be awful. You know, and so, yeah, if he feels like he's being pushed down, especially by John and Klein and Yoko, and he feels like he's being talked about, I think he probably came in older and cockier than ever, you know, because you can't show fear. Right. That's exactly right. And again, just to kind of pivot back to John for a second, but like, I also think that John's, you know, sort of biting, edgy sense of humor, I think that is natural and part of his personality as well. Mm -hmm. Um. However, when he's feeling vulnerable, 
it increases to 20 and it turns yeah, into, yeah, yeah. into lashing out and stuff. Like we do know, for example, that when Julia died, when she was killed in 1958, that John got worse. He was really vicious to like classmates, like to women at his school. He was a fucking nightmare to yeah. every girl yeah. that he wanted to date or, you know, like he was really, really aggressive and it's not a, not a coincidence that that coincides with the loss of his mother, you know, cause he's vulnerable. You know, the point being like, if we all know that about John, <laughs> you know, like yes. we need to apply the same principles to Paul. Yes. He has vulnerabilities, exactly, and insecurities as well. And he has defense mechanisms as well. Him being cocky doesn't mean he's a dick. It means That's like, right. That's, that's right. That he's unbothered by the situation. That that is... That how is how he acts when yes. he feels threat when he feels threatened. And I think that this this sort of situation, like this was a vicious cycle. Because I think the cockier right. he was and the more of a wall there was, the less he connected with the guys. And I think they're really reacting to him not being open and authentic and intimate with them. You know, like they're John, definitely somebody who always wants intimacy. And and you know. That could be one of the issues right now. Now, I've sort of criticized Paul, like, oh, if only Paul could have just, you know, driven out and spent some time with John and George and, you know, really connected with them. But these guys are not being especially nice. I, I'm not sure that Paul would feel safe at, at this time, especially with Klein, to let down his defenses. Well, if he's getting hostile vibes from them, then... The last thing he's going to want to do is let his guard down. and Right. People are very critical and, frankly, very mean about his uh, tendency to turn on when there's a camera around. Yeah. Oh, he look at him. He's acting all fake and stupid. Right. He's, he's always hamming it up for the camera. And, like, I think that – Sometimes that is just a nervous response. Even in some of the Let It Be tapes, um, the ones that are less candid, like when Paul can feel the cameras, like it, like sometimes he's like you can tell the difference when Paul's yeah, talking yeah. to the guys <laughs> versus when he's talking for the sake of the camera, and you right. can feel them resenting it when he is stuck in that mode of of talking for the camera. Paul just gets picked on a lot for that, but. You know, I think it's just something that happens to him that he can't even yeah, necessarily yeah, yeah. control all the time. <laughs> no. And I just, I wish people were a little more sympathetic to it. Oh, God, yeah. Paul is a very bad actor, <laughs> you know, because he doesn't have this natural ease. So when the camera is on him, he comes off as inauthentic. And I think maybe that contributes to the idea of like, he's the PR man. He's, you know, less honest, like, it doesn't do him any favors when he's trying too hard. You know? Right, 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 right. But that also is part of the fact that he is probably the best performer of them. You know what I mean? Like he's he's not good when he's supposed to just be natural in front of the camera. However, that same thing kicks on when he goes on stage. And that's where it's really, really important. Like Paul right, brings right, a right. jolt of energy like nobody else, you know? Yes, it's absolutely true. And the other thing I was going to say is that like it is a lot easier to be the sullen teenager, you know, to, to sit and just yes. sulk and have bitch face and not say anything and roll your eyes. Yes. Um, 
that's a much much easier role to play and you're you're always going to be cast as the cool one right it's very safe it's super safe and that's why it's annoying to me like you know for example in the anthology we were talking about in the anthology thing where there are some situations with the guys where paul is obviously uncomfortable or nervous or whatever but he's trying to put on yeah. A decent show, you know, yeah. like he's trying yeah. to play along and George won't play along and George gets points for that. And I'm always like, why does he get points for not playing along? Do you know how fucking easy it is to just be a bitch? Trust yeah, me, exactly. I can tell you it's very fucking easy to not throw someone a lifeline when they're struggling. That doesn't make you a fucking hero. That makes you an asshole. Well, and also how brave do you have to be to be the one that's always like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make an effort. I'm going to try and make things work. Exactly. Work. You know what I mean? Like Paul is always putting himself out there and it's really easy to right. be cool and to reject. And it's really hard to put yourself out there. Um, I want to pick up on the point about John being aggressive and yes. um, lashing out when his mother died and I think it's instructive to look at how Paul behaved when he, his mother died. You know, yeah. he um, was shuttled off to his aunts and, and was basically told to internalize it because externalizing it was going to be a burden to his family, to his father, you know. And so we know that, you know, according to his brother, he spent the next year really going internal with his guitar. And Paul himself has said about his mother's death that I put up walls. That's when I put up walls. And that's specifically, I assume, because he's afraid of getting hurt that badly again, right? I think so. In addition to the fact that, like, nobody helped him ever, nobody walked him through his grief, nobody told him it was okay to be sad. Nobody even told him what his mother died of. I mean, there's a lot of shame and silence and guilt around all of that, which is extremely psychologically damaging. I mean, that that can really fuck people up, especially children. Like to be 14, you know, going through, you know, the height of your crazy puberty, which you're also not talking about, by the way. (laughs) Right, right. True. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a very difficult age. For that to happen to Paul, you know, just as he's sort of like coming out of childhood into puberty and then to have this life-changing event, there would be massive ramifications from that and massive impacts on him and his his personality or the way he behaves in the world. And that just isn't taken into account enough in the Beatles story. I agree. And, And even when it is discussed, it's like, yeah, Paul also lost his mom too. Yeah, that was sad. It's like that's the right, that's right. where the story Moving ends on. in Beatles world, exactly. right? And the, and the, and we've only come to even recognize it as a bad, sad thing of his childhood in like the past ten years or something, you know. <laughs> and even now, it's like, oh, sure, that happened to Paul too. But beyond, you know, beyond him being sad about it for a year, it never mattered to him ever again or something. Right. He moved on. Exactly. It's sort of like the outcome of that was that he got really, really, really good at guitar, and you know, spent a, a year just practicing by himself. And then he met John and boom, you know, otherwise he had a happy childhood. But the damage that would have done, the idea that he put walls around himself comes from a quote from Paul. Like he literally 
told us, Paul is not always that open, but he said that, that he put a wall around himself at that time. And presumably he brings it down for the people that are very closest to him. But I think that that may be something else that's contributing to this situation is that he doesn't want to be too hurt, you know, that Paul, Paul potentially pulls back from situations that are, you know. Well, there's, you know, there's another thing. If you have a horrible tragedy, the major death of in your family, like one of your parents, and you're not allowed to talk about it and you're not allowed to grieve and whatever, that creates a lot of confusion and fear. There's a lot of unknown to him now. And the, and it, it has to, at some point, turn into like, why am I not allowed to go here? What's in this black hole that I'm not supposed to even look into? That's and right. I, That's right. I, Actually... I, Sometimes I get that feeling from Paul that that there are places he's afraid to even look because they've been declared off limits since he was a child. Yeah. And Paul does actually leave breadcrumbs that he is very afraid of going into a dark place. You know, when he's talking about one of the side effects of uh, cocaine was that he experienced a real low afterwards and he connected it to the feeling of uh, how he felt after his mother died. And so that was enough to, you know, scare him off it. He mentions this in a few different ways. And so it seems like he's always avoiding that feeling. Of course, you'd want to, but there, there's a fear of getting too close to that kind of feeling. Um, and, and as you said, I think that Paul actually has much darker places and lower points than we necessarily know or talk about you know right and then people complain that like he's always writing optimistic songs instead of dark songs like hmm right (laughs) well there's that he writes optimistic songs but in his canon there are a ton of self-soothing songs or songs that i see as self-soothing i guess for the the public they are soothing and i think that the primary audience for these songs is himself you know, that or at, least, at least he empathizes with the need to soothe. 2008, a reporter asks him, do you subscribe to the view that great art tends to come from personal suffering? Paul says, I don't know. It's not really whether I subscribe to that view. It's whether it happens for me. Some people, when they are going through periods of angst, get anxious songs that come out of it. What I notice is that I tend to do hopeful songs in order to counteract that angst. It's just my method. So I don't know whether my divorce will ever actually translate literally into song. Uh, it might do, but I'm, I'm not so good, I think, at angst-ridden songs. My natural optimism tends to take over. Even if I've got an anxious first verse, the next verse is, well, but never mind because it's going to be all right. Well, you know, the best example of that is Hey Jude, you know, take right. a sad song. So then that and it ends up in bliss. And Paul talks about this, that he, his guitar, his, his instruments are his therapist. Like this is who he goes to talk to, how he soothes himself. And I think that that does translate into his music constantly. So we are hearing Paul's emotions, like this idea that, you know, Paul's not as transparent or emotional in his songs is, is a fallacy. And it's just not true. It's just he, he emotes in a different way. I, I love that quote for that reason. Yeah. And he goes on to say, like, you know, I have to live this. It's my life. You know, like I have to still be a human being like my life has to be manageable and livable for me. I just honestly, I sometimes feel like 
like we're in hell here because it's like Beetledom is like, oh, Paul lost his mom and he wasn't allowed to talk about it or grieve or even cry at 14. Why does he write all these happy songs? Oh, well, I guess he's shallow. Like, oh my God. I know, I know. But the thing is, he labels them as optimistic, but in truth, they are soothing and they have an optimistic end. But there is this idea constantly, like, let it be, you're going through something, things will work out. But they're not just happy songs. That's true. So taking this back to the situation that we're in. So, you know, if we've just talked about the, the fact that Paul's got like this, this um, armor of cockiness, like that's how he protects himself. But then on top of this armor of cockiness, we, he has said that he put up walls when his mother died. And so any situation that I think is scary or, you know, uh, potentially um, going to hurt him, he probably puts up walls. So that these are probably two things that are being activated at this time, which, again, would take him a step back from the others right, you know, right, right. in terms of being intimate with them. I mean, it would be hard to be totally authentic and cool when you are battling somebody that, you know, is trying to take away your entire career and fortune in your mind and everybody else is endorsing him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's a ter- he was in a terrible, terrible situation. How much Paul's behavior is a result of feeling um, vulnerable? I think that there's two things going on. There's one, like Paul's on a professional high. And so... You know, we can hear him being instructive to Badfinger and, and, you know, being very sure of himself in the studio because that is a place where he feels safe is in music. So, yes, there probably was some some cockiness there. But at the same time, the band is also interpersonal and he's dealing with business and interpersonal issues all the time, too. So, you know, it was a terrible situation for him. You know, I just think that we can also tie his mother back to acid, you know, like. The fact that Paul was a little hesitant to do that, you know, could have to do with the fact that he was not afraid of what's inside, afraid of going to a bad spot that reminded him of his experience with his mother. Like the books, the story, the other Beatles seem to have no empathy for that. And maybe that's Paul's fault because he doesn't talk about it quite as much as John. Right, 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 right. Even all those things we we discussed, like... um you know, Paul turning into a a sort of performative state when he's uh, insecure or nervous or whatever. I'm not saying that those wouldn't be annoying to his friends. They're like, Paul, turn off and stop doing this. Yes, I understand that. I get get why that would would be irritating over time, too, especially if they have the ability to turn it off. Right. Then they'd be like, what's your problem, dude? But at the same time, don't be an asshole, you know, like be, be sympathetic. Yeah, That's don't... right. I mean, I, I think that we know from the story that Paul does share things with, for example, Linda and Jane. We know that, uh, you know, from an anecdote, apparently Paul said like breaking up with Jane was really hard because he shared all of his feelings about his mother and he was very transparent with her. And then he says when he got together with Linda, he shared everything that there was no secrets and that there were, that was a big relief for him. And so, you know, Paul is willing to be open when he feels safe. And it seems like women, kids and animals are way safer to Paul. He's really at ease, right? Yeah, well, I wouldn't trust guys either. <laughs> I mean, Especially not those guys. I wouldn't trust any I mean, guys. This is my confusion about this issue is that Paul was incredibly close 
to the three guys. And like they shared a bond that nobody else could get inside. So it seems like there that there was this intimacy uh, between the Beatles. But at the same time, we hear stories from, you know, like Alan Klein talks about how John would get frustrated that when he would let his guard down and be really open with Paul that, you know, that Paul would hurt him. And I think he would hurt him by probably not being pulling back. Yeah. Yeah, Pulling back. Exactly. And so it's always a conundrum to me whether or not Paul was incredibly open and intimate with these guys, or maybe, maybe that was the hard part is that sometimes he would show up and be open. And then sometimes he would pull back. Well, this, this, this is kind of a conundrum because it, and it kind of complicates the John and Paul story too, because Paul says, John and I were super in- incredibly close, which I do believe in, which I think is really the truth. And so, and when John yes, believes, yes. he he talks that way too uh, in yes. songs that we suspect are about Paul or to Paul. Um, so I believe that is the case. However, I think there is a part of John, like an angry version of John, like a the the angry side of John that thinks that he was duped or fooled or played for a fool the myth yes yes um and i think at some point it it kind of is just like john didn't get enough or he didn't get what he wanted you know there was something he didn't get that he wanted from paul and it was enough that when he ruminates on it too much and it makes him angry he goes you know what we were never close at all anyway and i think that's a defense mechanism on john's part right you know this was something that i think john truly truly believed in. And so at some point he feels like maybe I was duped, as you said, that it becomes so hurtful that he has to almost separate himself from it, you know, and say, well, none of it was true. Right. I think it's very underestimated. The effect that it can have when, when somebody is framed as the left party or the dumped party, you know, right. Even subconsciously you begin to think of them as like, Oh, what did they do? Did they fuck up? Exactly. Boring. If you don't want to make the person who left the bad guy, the person who is left, there has to be something wrong with that person. Like there has to be a reason that the lever would want to leave. Right. Right. But but before we even discuss this, I just want to jump in and clarify, and we've said this many, many times, we do not believe that either Paul or John intended the breakup to happen, that this was the result of actions meant to provoke reactions that spun out of control, resulting in a situation that neither of them really wanted, that they were both left devastated and gutted, believing that they had been abandoned by the other person. Right. Paul believed that John had left him in September 1969, and John believing that Paul had left him in April 70, when really neither of them left or really wanted to leave the other. Although, as you said, I do think they both feel like they were slighted and, and left and abandoned by the other person. Like, I really and truly believe to understand the story, you have to understand that they both feel like they were the left one. And they both talk about that going forward, right? Yeah. Like, that's how they talk about it. Right. But based on the way that the breakup narrative is told, Paul is positioned as the left party. 
which is something that he embraces because it absolves him of responsibility. And, and as we've said many times, we think it, he believes it's preferable to being the villain of the story. So just wanted to jump in with that little PSA summary to remind everyone that Paul was not necessarily left. It's that's how he has been positioned. It's like there's there's two explanations here. It always has to be a shortcoming on Paul's part. Yes, so it either exactly. becomes, you know, he, he was just too lame and unable to keep his man interested. Yes. I have it's, literally heard that on other podcasts. Oh, I'm he sure you have. And this notion that Yoko stole John, you know? Well, Yoko has even said that she likes that story because it makes her feel sexy. It does. It suggests that she is the more interesting creative partner, you know, so it elevates her because she had the ability to steal John. This idea of Paul being left by John or Yoko stealing John is one of the most insidious, pervasive and wrongheaded ideas in the Beatles story. It gives Yoko way more power than she had and conflates her romantic partnership with John which had a creative aspect, with Paul's creative professional partnership with John. They are not the same thing. Right, right, right. Like Yoko's love trumps the Lennon-McCartney songbook. Right. Creatively. Creatively, (laughs) exactly. Weirdly, it takes their romantic connection and somehow that makes it into a creative thing. And it makes John's issue a neediness for everything in a partner, creativity, and romance, and for them to be there 24-7, into a creative failing on Paul's part. And it turns Paul's desire to maintain a great professional creative partnership and friendship into his emotional neediness. It also subtly puts the, or, or not so subtly, puts the blame on Paul. He's not enough to keep John. Right, exactly. Exactly. To keep his man. In the Even way- though- He's not John's boyfriend. <laughs> right. Like, how is he supposed to keep a man he doesn't have? <laughs> exactly. It, it ignores the fact that Paul cannot fulfill that role for John, that he is not John's romantic partner. Like, that's John's problem. Exactly. And it makes Paul's genuine desire to see John romantically happy, which there is lots of evidence for, into a fault, you know? Like the fact that Paul was sort of respectful of John and Yoko. Yeah, yeah. Like he didn't he didn't fight. Right. Like and again, again, we made the point that maybe Paul should have creatively fought in the studio. And even Paul says that's a regret of right, his, right. that he yeah, should have yeah. asked Yoko to not be there. But again, Paul was being sort of re- respectful of John because he wanted John to be happy. John to I be think. happy as with his girlfriend. Well, that's the thing, is like people People get on Paul's case like, oh, Paul, you should have told John to keep Yoko at home. But at the same time, they're like, oh, Paul's so jealous. Look at him. He can't stand that Yoko stole his man away. Like, Right, exactly. That's the thing is that it was John. It was John that is conflating the two and bringing right. his lover into the studio and sitting him her next to him looking directly at his creative partner and like how and saying like does this bother you does this bother oh well, why does it bother you do you like me or something <laughs> right and i think that so confused paul because he had a legitimate beef with the issue but at the same time there's probably the human interpersonal side of paul that's like i want my friend to be happy and he put paul into a fucking impossible position well he did and he puts him in a position like well 
I don't know. Do I like you? Like, is this weird? Like, it's not weird that <laughs> right. I don't want her here, is it? Yes, oh exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I don't know what Jean Jackets think Paul should have done. You know, should Paul have battled yeah. John's romantic interest? And that's my frustration with this, is it conflates these two issues, romantic and creative. And that's what we've been saying all along, is that if this was a creative issue, then it shouldn't have been, because Paul was plenty creative at that time and progressive. You know, that's that's what yes. Donovan said, yes. is that Paul was so creative, almost to a problematic degree. Right. And so I wish we would just separate that. Like, Paul could keep John creatively what he couldn't do was be everything for John at the time, okay? Well, well, exactly. Like, if, if Paul challenges John's girlfriend, that means that if Paul wins, he has to deliver. Right, and be everything. And that's right. that's why I think at, at this point, Paul just is like, well, John left because he was so in love. Because he's like, okay, the romantic thing trumped. And that's like, okay, if the romantic thing trumped, then fine. Then it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Yoko didn't steal him from Paul because Paul isn't playing or competing at that game. Yoko stole John from Cynthia on a romantic level. Right. Not from Paul. So that is my huge issue with this conflation. It demeans Paul creatively when it shouldn't because they are not fighting on that field. You know, as we said many times, there was a real love there. So yeah. whereas George was just able to say, this is fucking stupid, get her out of the studio. Paul was right, like, right, but exactly. I am confused because this is not comfortable. But Paul had, you know, a legitimate right, reason right. for being upset. And I just wish we could separate that. Paul could keep John creatively. He could not keep him romantically because they were not romantic partners. Okay, so I just want that to die. And I think it's up there in my pantheon of worst Beatles tropes, along with the Lewis and ludicrous and absurd belief that Paul Hero worshiped John, which again, so demeans Paul's creative powers. I hate that so much. Yes. I hate it so much. And it's Lewison's favorite little nugget to trot out. Which is not based on anything, given that Paul has repeatedly and consistently said that he grew up, that they were equals in the band, you know? So can we please, please do away with these? And, And I also think that Paul generally doesn't leave. I think that Paul is somebody who is just really, really committed and will try and work things out, you know? And that's sort of weaponized, but it's actually a very nice trait. That he's not a cut and run yeah. guy, you're saying? Yeah, that, you know, it's like, I won't go away unless you tell me yeah, so, yeah, I'll never yeah, go away. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, that's probably Paul's persona. Once he's committed, I think it takes him a while to be committed, but once he's committed, I think he sticks it out, you know? I mean, how many times did he and Jane break apart? But, you know, like they broke up 50 fucking times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah he, exactly. He wouldn't go away until she was finally like, I'm done with your ass and said <laughs> yes, it on TV. Exactly. You know, like and he made her be the one to dump him. And, the you know, same with Heather. He he had cold feet before he even married her. That's right. But, but he refused to break it off because he had promised to marry her. Yes. And I think that that's part of his upbringing with Jim. You make commitment, you deliver. But also I think that he probably would see that as a failure, you know, and, and we know oh, that for sure, for sure. We know that he didn't want the Beatles to break up because he saw them as a beautiful thing. But I just think it's his 
personality to keep going, to keep working on things, you know, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a valuable trait. And you and I have even theorized, I mean, we don't, we don't know this for sure, but maybe Paul told John he was never going to go away at some point. I think so. I mean, you know, this is our hypothesis that maybe John knew that Paul was not somebody who walked away, you know, and that he said the same thing, I'll never go away, you know. And so the fact that he does six months later is 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 devastating. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think they all count on that for Paul. But I mean, if he thinks it's his duty and his responsibility, then, you know, how are you how are you turning that into a bad thing? I mean, I guess you can make the argument, Paul, it's not worth it anymore. Don't let them treat you like this, which is I think the point that <laughs> right, it reaches. Right, right. Both, I think yeah. Linda's like, you don't have you don't need to take this shit. Yeah, yeah. One kind of cheers for Paul at some point because it's not good. But right. not a sign of weakness, but a sign of commitment. That's the point. Yeah. So that's the first thing is that it has to be some shortcoming on Paul's that he can't keep his man. Or the other alternative is that he did something horrible. Yes. And again, I think that's why, for example, the Lenin estate puts so much emphasis on George Harrison being a part of How Do You Sleep? That's right. Because it makes it credible. And it's, it's a way of saying like, it's not just John C. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, George Harrison is part of it too. And I know that you guys trust him. You think he's a good right. guy. So right. clearly Paul deserved it. Otherwise, how could they both feel the same way? Right. Don't feel that bad for Paul. Don't feel bad for him. Exactly. Exactly. He yeah. asked for it. I mean, it, you know, it can't be overstated how important George's role and George's alliance with John in this situation was for making Paul be the bad guy. Like, I, I think the whole three to one scenario uh, does this, but the the George and Ringo playing on John's songs sort of seal it with like, we're all good. We have no issues, even though they do. But, you know, yes, ex- right. externally, you know, it seems like they're all great friends. You know what I mean? So that, again, is seen as evidence that Paul did something or was not a good partner. We don't have any concrete evidence. I mean, it's so hard to put your finger on exactly. what, what the hell Paul did that was so awful. We talked about that with the um, the Northern Songs episode. It's like authors are reaching for the fact that Paul must have done something, but they can't quite figure it, it, what it is. That's the thing. And I'm I'm really tired of the constant condemning Paul and then trying to like retrofit some sort of case to right. justify with the fact that you've put him in jail. Like it's <laughs> bullshit. That is a core problem is that a lot of people come in with this weird skewed baseline assumption about Paul that was created in the breakup period that is potentially not true. I mean, we've got lots of evidence to suggest is not true, but when they come and they look at things through the eyes of the fact that Paul was a diva and, and, but diva is one because that's just like a vain, unreasonable bitch, you know, like feminine. Yes, there, there is nothing like, positive associated with being a diva, except you are allowed to be good at what you do. But their behavior is terrible for everyone else, you know. And uh, again, you know, John displays all well, the same behaviors, and yet he's like a leader. Th- this guy is like a diva. But at the same time, he is also the ultimate PR ass kisser. 
right, right, <laughs> right, like, right. And like, like he's giving nonstop hand jobs to every reporter <laughs> who comes in. And yet he's also like this villain tyrant, like, get me a diet coke now. You know, like, Jesus Christ. Exactly. Who is this person? I don't know like, who this person is. Like Paul becomes very, he's already unknowable. This version of Paul is even more unknowable. But the problem is, is that none of these ideas are true. You know, this, this idea of him being not creatively exciting, not progressive, not, you know, uh, supportive. None of these are true. He is all of those things. You know, I so very deeply hate the trope about Paul being the fantastic PR guy, like this idea that he's always trying to work an angle no matter what. It gives writers especially people who have taken it upon themselves to declare that they are unbiased. It gives them an excuse to not incorporate Paul's point That's of right. view. That's right. He comes off as less honest when he's positioned as the PR guy, right? That's right. And they're like, well, Paul said this, but, <laughs> right. you know, let's trust everything John. he says is, yeah, he's saying that to make himself look better. There's something dehumanizing about that because it robs him of his own point of view in his own story of the Beatles That's that right. he helped create. It was like created on like his creative back and it's not fair. We even have accounts from May Pang about John and Yoko crafting narratives. You know, we've got stories about them prepping how they're going to tell stories. So we know that they prep stories. We also know that what Yes. John, George, and Ringo said in the trial was yes. very, very coordinated and prepared yes. and untrue. So we have accounts right. of these being untrue. So, you know, there is no reason to trust those guys more than Paul. That's but, that's exactly right. Like, where where's the evidence that Paul's any less truthful than any of these other guys? The PR guy means that he's trying to spin things and he's not being yes, honest. Right. But beyond that, it also sort of diminishes him as an artist because it suggests that he's always just, you know, trying to promote things like promotion, trying to guy, sell records, trying yeah. to sell. Yeah. And that, you know, instead of being like the, the suffering artist that like, I don't care. I'm just putting my art into the world. Which you know is an I mean? act too. <laughs> right. Like th that's part of an image. That helps sell records. It's ridiculous the way we talk about these people. I like the Beatles. I'm a fan. Yeah, I really love Paul McCartney. I'm in love with him. I dream about him every night. Paul McCartney. It packed into this idea that he's an egomaniacal monster was that he wasn't good to work with. Do you think that, that that is a fair statement? Well, we just shared a clip of Donovan, and there was a reason that we did that, other than it just being cute and sweet, you know, and we <laughs> love Paul too. Love. Yeah. yeah. It's just so counter to this sort of dogged idea that, that Paul is just like this piece of shit that nobody wants anything to do with. Right. Donovan's interesting. That was in September that that quote is from, you know, so this is within this period that we're talking about is Donovan showing Paul a lot of love. And his perspective was that Paul was so productive, so creative. He had worked with Paul earlier in the year on the Mary Hopkins album. So 
that's somebody who's just worked with him and he still likes Paul. In fact, he says he's in love with Paul. I mean, jokingly, but yes, and and Donovan has conceded that, yeah, like, yeah, Paul is competitive too. Yes, it's, yes, it's, he's not like you don't know Paul. Paul's really a soft peanut, you know, like <laughs> he's just a little marshmallow. And when you get to know him, he's the sweetest. <laughs> no, like, nobody says that about Paul. Nobody, nobody, says, that, nobody exactly. says that Paul's a marshmallow in real life. No, they say that Donovan's about John. like, yeah, exactly. Donovan's like Paul's pretty. Uh, big deal serious dude but but i totally respect him and he's you know he's on record saying look paul is a genius people i don't know i don't know what you fucking think of this guy but like yeah peter asher he's on record just saying like of course paul's a genius it's kind of just accepted and yet in this story it almost gets lost if the story is paul's a genius then john doesn't have to leave to ascend to greatness, John has to leave yeah. for other reasons then. Well, if Paul is a genius and and not boring, then that makes John competitive yep. rather than bored. Which is the point that we were making in the last episode, is that John feels the need to change the game and do something differently, which I think really right. is the story. You know, if, if they are always equal and um, very competitive with each other, then they always have to be elevating their game. If Paul really was the loser who didn't do anything afterwards, then fine. I mean, then it's like, well, that's sad. That's a sad story for Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not the fucking story. And I think that that's where I've always had so much cognitive dissonance with this story. And the gaslighting, like, why do you keep telling me this brilliant artist was lesser yep. than? But the way the story is told does undermine yes. Paul's talent yes and it disrespects all that he brought to the table absolutely it does it's and it's meant to and it keeps getting pushed constantly every day to- well here's the problem is I think that Paul is not great at standing up for himself I think it took him right. a while you know maybe until the next year like the next six months to actually lean into his anger I think that potentially yes. He was conflicted because he knows he was dominant on the albums, you know, and he probably is a little bit guilty about that. And he also knows he's battling Klein and and throwing a wrench at things. Now, he I also think he's doing that because he thinks he's saving the band, you know, Yeah, which he did, by the way, which he did for nothing. Yeah. These might be conflicting emotions in Paul. So he can't quite lean into his anger and feeling disrespected and indignation indignation in the, the way that John does. I think that comes out later when he has a period to reflect on it and get away from things, you know? Well, and also, like, who amongst us would feel cool about ourselves after John Lennon and George Harrison are like, by the way, we got together, we had dinner, and we decided that you're a cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't you be like, damn, that's fucking hurtful. Okay, my best friends in the world. (laughs) Yes, seriously. Wrapped up in the breakup story is this characterization that George wasn't getting along with Paul. Or that George found Paul irritating and annoying, which is fine. That may be the case. But somehow George's perspective has come to define how Paul is positioned at that time, as in everybody found Paul annoying. Right. Or worse, that Paul was annoying, which is not necessarily the case. I mean, clearly lots of people like him. Right. And also this 
bizarre idea that George Harrison is like the world spokesman. Like he speaks for the entire world. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I don't understand why we have to all co-sign his point of view. All co-sign his point of view. Right. Especially since we have other points of view, you know, like Ken Mansfield or Tony Bramwell, and they position him as extremely popular and likable, like eminently likable is one of the ways that Paul is described and charming. It doesn't mean that George's point of view is invalid. It just means that like George is only one person. Right. And he has his reasons for feeling like that. You know, Barry Miles has said that was great friends uh, with Paul until Linda came on the scene and Linda kind of excluded a lot of the Jane friends. So, you know, Paul is not surrounded by his usual crew from that crowd, but I mean, they're certainly not, not close to Paul because they don't like him. You know? Yeah. Well, and I think his house, you know, his house at Cavendish was like the jump off spot for a number of years and now all of a sudden Linda's like, can can we not have people just dropping in 24-7, right. please? And so now that that's curtailed, I don't know how much Paul is the type of guy who's like, let me ring so-and-so. Maybe we'll have dinner on Thursday. Yeah. You know, if he's used to people just showing up and coming to him, he like he might not really know how to reach out. And then the other thing is that like if he's feeling bad about himself and his friends are being mean girls to him. Yep. That like if that's a situation for me, I wouldn't feel really confident to be like, I'm going to call everybody in my Rolodex and see if they, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I, that sounds like you might just want to go home and crash or jump in a car and get away, which is really what they exactly. do with a person that you know that really does love you and, you know, makes you feel well, really good about yourself. That's, you know, that's what happens. The other thing is that John and Yoko do that to the extreme Yes. They cut off, like, everybody in their lives in 1972, so they go through the same bullshit. Well, they did so, more so, you know, that that's... Yeah, exactly. I think the Linda ones had much more to do with Jane, Jane Asher. But the thing is, is that I think a lot of the story stems from the three-to-one scenario with Klein. But we've got people like Donovan... And Steve Miller. I mean, he played with Steve Miller earlier in the year also. They obviously remained friends for decades. Yeah, I mean, he makes the point that they were really comfortable together. And, you know, they were. He, Paul was fun to jam with. And, and Well, everybody says Paul's fun to jam with. Yeah, yeah. I mean... And just fun to play with. Like, the- everybody likes playing with him. For me, it's sort of like um, being around Mozart or something. It's... Uh, a remarkable experience because Paul is so talented. He uh, he plays um, uh, drums, he plays bass, he plays guitar, and uh, he was in the Beatles, a great band, and he writes uh, uh, classical music, and he, he's just uh, an amazingly creative person to be around, and absolutely pleasant, very polite, really fun to work with, and uh, we have nothing but a good time every time we get together. That brings us to another idea that's packed into this is like that Paul wasn't the hottest rock star in the world. Somehow that gets lost too because of the three to one. But again, that's like a that's like beetle myopia. 
It is. That's like, you know, if it's like you're so into the story, <laughs> and trust me, I say this to somebody who is way too <laughs> Nobody, far no. in, down this rabbit hole. Exactly. <laughs> so it's no judgment on anyone. But having said all that, like, it's helpful sometimes to step out of the circus tent of John and, and Paul and George and Alan Klein and whatever. And like, there's a whole other world out there. Yeah. I mean, we look at this year and we see that Jimi Hendrix wants to be playing with Paul in the fall and that Donovan's giving him shout outs and that he's working with Apple bands. And, you know, there's magazines that are talking about the fact that Paul was a musical genius. Like just, I think that so much of the actual situation has gotten lost. So to think that people aren't dying to play with Paul at this time is insane. It's crazy. And more to the point, it's misrepresentative to portray it otherwise. Jimi Hendrix is a big one. That's a big one because honestly, like if Paul had gotten together with Jimi Hendrix, like who cares about John Lennon? I mean, no disrespect to John, but like who's cooler than John Lennon? Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) I mean, that's a big, that's a big fucking deal. Like that's cool. I'd like that. It wouldn't even matter. Yeah, I mean, we're not even imagining this scenario. This really happened, and it's not kind of reflected in the story. So for anybody who doesn't know, Jimi Hendrix sent a telegram to Paul at the Apple offices in October of 1969 saying, hey, man, uh, do you want to come make an album with me and Miles Davis and the drummer Tony Williams? Here's my manager's number or whatever. Peter Brown responded that Paul was away from the office and didn't pass along the message to Paul. And we know that because Paul only found out about this telegram a couple of years ago because it, it surfaced at like a hard rock cafe, but it was authenticated. And like we said, um, Peter Brown sent a return telegram. So he was well fucking aware of it and withheld this information from Paul for his whole life. And by the way, Jimi Hendrix dies in 1970, so it's not as if it wasn't time-sensitive in retrospect. Right, um, and and, it, and Paul actually gives an interview when Jimmy dies. He steps up and gives a public interview about that because he cared, you know, like Jimi Hendrix was really important to him. Right, exactly. That's an amazing missed opportunity. Could you even imagine the kind of resentment that you would have if Jimi Hendrix invited you to play on an album with him? <laughs> That's right, and how much would that have changed the story and Paul's own view of himself at that time. Uh, you know? Seriously. And Paul's own experience. If he would have jumped on a plane and just done an album with Jimi Hendrix, like thanks Peter Brown. Right. Don't get it twisted. Peter Brown is a piece of shit. He is not a good person. And he is a bad actor in the Beatles story because not only did he withhold this information from Paul, he has withheld it from the Beatles story and well, it skews the fucking story. Well, that's the problem is that Peter Brown is extremely influential. Like he has probably given more interviews about the Beatles days and has done more to shape the views of the Beatles than almost anybody else. And exactly. He withheld this information, which would have changed Paul's life. Paul was getting invited to do albums with coolest rock stars in the world. And that isn't included in the story. And so the story just is misrepresented. Seriously, if you you think that the Beatles story is not created by partisans and, you know, competing camps and people with agendas, fucking wake up. Who was the person that stopped Peter Brown from taking over as the lead manager of the Beatles? 
Oh, Paul, Paul McCartney. McCartney. Yeah, and who immortalized Peter Brown in a Beatles song? That would be John Lennon. So who do we think he's going to take? <laughs> Please. It, but that's the point, is that he did reach out to Paul because Paul was incredibly desirable. Paul cut himself off. Paul and Linda went away from the world. But that doesn't mean that everybody and their brother didn't want to be buddies with Paul. We know that Winner left London in a in a fit of peak because he couldn't get into Cavendish Avenue. And then he sort of took it out on Paul for the next 40 years in Rolling Stone. But he was having a little hissy fit because he couldn't get in there. You know, the other Beatles might not like Paul at this moment. Doesn't make him unlikable by everybody on the planet, you know. <laughs> yes. And I think that's weirdly gets conflated with like the right. guys, you know, right. are on outs with them. And again, even the situation with the guys, as we're discussing, has more to do with their own hurts and, and, and reactions to Paul. Yeah. Very personal issues that, yeah. that then authors take and they're like, well, you know, I guess he wasn't liked by them. His best friends being mad at him. Doesn't mean yes. that he's not a desirable <laughs> commodity in the in the music and entertainment industry. And that needs to be taken into account to understand the story too, because again, there's jealousies and there's issues that come from that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. This is the quote that Donovan said. Um, about Paul, he said, Paul and I had a close relationship in the 60s for brief periods, and I have nothing but respect for that man's writing talent. I can write a song every five minutes if we get going, and Paul can as well. And that was the that was the breakup, really, with the Beatles, I think, because Paul is so creative. Honestly, if he just tinkles the piano, there's another song. Paul needed, at that time, somebody like me who could sit around and jam with him. The Beatles didn't jam at that time. They made records every time they got together, the tape was rolling. So that's what I did for Paul in those few months we were together. It's interesting that he, he says the few months, you know, so I guess they must have played on and off. That suggests that there was a little bit more of a musical partnership? Yeah, well, I think it was ongoing throughout, you know... Um, and he was in India, too. Yeah, yeah, he was in India, them. and so they, they worked a little bit together then, and then he came back, and, you know, we've got the tapes of Paul and Donovan in the studio. But, you know, again, this is Donovan. He was there playing with them, and does any book say that? And that was the breakup, really, with the Beatles, I think, because Paul is so creative. You know, he just is, like, everybody says this, that he just has endless ideas. I mean, again, totally understand that how that could be annoying if you're his partner. I think it would be if you're competitive with him in that, you know, like, oh, like, yeah, like George yeah, yeah. says, like when, when he focuses on your song, it's fantastic to have somebody that can come up with ideas. But, it, you know, if if you want him to focus and, and he's like, oh, and I wrote this other amazing new song. Oh, and I wrote this other new classic. It would just be like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Could you just slow down for a minute, please? Yeah. He needed three bands, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably Paul would have really benefited from the ability to do side, you know, solo albums. I, he would, he would, he would, actually. I, you know, I, I, I don't know why he feared doing that. I guess because the Beatles were in such a bad space that I guess he thought, if I let go for a minute, it's all going to fall apart. For example, Michael Lindsay Hogg talks about how um, the rock and roll circus, like, Paul was invited to that or they were thinking about inviting, but he said that 
we knew that Paul wouldn't do it without the Beatles. And sometimes I think that's taken as like Paul was so dependent on the Beatles, but I read into it that Paul wouldn't have made that move because it would have been a signal to the Beatles because Paul knows if he leaves, it all falls, it all falls apart. We have an observer in Michael Lindsay Hogg who observed them in Let It Be when, you know, everybody claims that Paul was overbearing in Let It Be. But I think that Michael Lindsay Hogg's perspective is interesting because he was there the whole time and he didn't come away with the opinion that Paul was treating anybody badly. Paul, who was talking all the time and trying to run the show, that's not all that Paul was. I mean, Paul is an extremely smart, shrewd, funny, self-confident man. And he was since he was, you know, 20 years old. And so this was just, since the camera was there, and since Paul was doing all the talking, it makes Paul look like the big mouth of the group. Well, in real life, he wasn't the big mouth of the group. It's just that was happening that month and probably went on, you know. But that was the strange time. That was when they were breaking up and he didn't want them to break up. We can all review the tapes and, you know, Peter Jackson can review the 300 hours of tape and whatever. Like, he can make a pretty good assessment of Paul's behavior at that period yeah. too. But Michael Lindsay Hogg was literally there. So yeah. he was there even when the cameras weren't rolling. And yeah. also he had known the Beatles for several years at that point. Right. And again, it's not like, you know, Paul was just fronting because you know what, I'm sure anybody can front for an hour or two a day, but they also spent just a lot of time just hanging out and sitting around in those sessions. The well, whole and who, can, who can put on a fake face for, under super stressful, like the most stressful possible circumstances, days and days at a time, you know, like 12 hour days. Exactly. We've got other footage from Paul. You know, if we just take it outside of the Beatles, because that's their interpersonal dynamics. And and like we said, it's got so much baggage that it's almost hard to judge anything there. But we do have audio of Paul producing Badfinger. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we get a a fuller, more more well-rounded view of Paul listening to that tape. You know, again... We see somebody who's really good at what he does, who has an amazing yep. ear, who yep. knows how to make hits, and who is doing it very effectively. And he's not a dick. <laughs> no, I mean, he's just not. A, just a, by any measure, he's not a dick. Yeah, try it with cans off if it's Exactly. Like, it's, again, interesting listening to Paul, listening to this in the interviews of, from Paul this year, listening to the audio of him with Badfinger. It's like he's very, he's very sure of himself and encouraging, and he has a strong point of view. So those are all true. He knows what he's doing, and he wants a hit for them to put them yeah. on the map. He wants a hit for Apple, even though it may be annoying to be told that you have to do the song exactly this way. You know, he is also delivering them a hit. And so they've got the rest of the album to do what they want. He doesn't sound like a tyrant. He sounded great to have on your side, you know, and he sounded really encouraging. And he was like coaching them. They've got some experience, but not a ton. And Paul does have experience. Like, that's kind of his job. He owns Apple. And he's he's doing a good job as producer. 
you know, the Beatles have their own interpersonal dynamics that we can't really, it's not really our place to take sides on. Fair enough. But I guess the other question is like, to whom do we assign the blame of the breakup? So that's kind of like the other thing that people get into authors and fandom and whatever is like, whose fault is this? So we're taking more of a no fault approach to the breakup. Just kind of trying to understand what happened rather than assign blame. Yeah. I mean, we don't think anyone is to blame. All this is, is like dynamics and, and issues that are, escalating but in an attempt to be you know to look at everybody's perspective we know with mary hopkins apparently she felt like paul you know was very decisive in terms of assigning her songs but again you know she's a she's a 17 year old yeah and paul is producing her on his label and he's writing her songs exactly so yeah you know, he's like launching these people. I mean, I guess the trade-off is this, that you don't have total creative control, control. of your debut <laughs> album at 17. <laughs> exactly. But, but here's the good news about that is if you get a hit, you have a lot more power to make your next right, album right, the way exactly. you want it, you exactly. know? Play a bit lighter. Just, you know, it, try not to sort of think you're in the studio and stuff, you know. Probably come up with better if you just sort of fuck it. This actually gets us to an interesting element here is that Paul is straddling multiple roles within the Beatles right now. He's co-Beatle with them, you know, co-musician, co-writer, and and you know, a competitor in his own right, but he's also kind of the band leader, part producer, part yeah project manager and like he's straddling a bunch of these roles and they're also like hey paul you're not the fucking boss okay you know like nobody appointed you king beetle um <laughs> and paul's like what would you guys like because realistically they might not have done much if he wasn't there ringo says that right yes but but i mean their point does still stand you can you can see why sure. they're like Paul, what the fuck, dude? You know, because <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't—he wasn't appointed CEO. He—he he took over that he position. Did. He was like, he you did. know what? I am Beatles CEO, and the Beatles will be now my vision. You know, and and so they kind of went like, okay, uh, yes. And then, to. of course, you know, in Paul's defense, there was a vacuum. I mean, Brian, there was. Brian left a vacuum, and John was perhaps falling down on the job a little bit in terms of the partnership or the, you know, the co-leadership or whatever. So Paul really did fill that vacuum. But he was partly in this role already by 67, but like there was oh, a sure. bunch of other stuff that he shouldn't have been in that like it took him out of just the creative competitor kind of position. Yeah, exactly. So if Paul is like one of the four Beatles and one of the two yeah. main songwriters and yeah. a major idea, man, you know, and mm -hmm. the concept pitcher, and that's great. But if he's also sort of acting as the manager, that is a conflict of interest. Because we've got Paul just in Beatle Paul position in 67, you know, before Brian dies. And he's already really creatively yes. dominant yes, exactly, at this point. exactly. But then when Brian dies and he takes that over, when we were interviewing Chris O'Dell, she said the other guys needed to bring in Klein 
Because if not, Paul would have been in charge of everything. Yes. And I don't think that this was a power grab on Paul's position. Like, I don't, I don't think he was like, ha now I, I am in control. I think he just yes. went into I, I all agree. of those roles. I agree. And I think he, you know, I think he was capable in all those areas too. But like we were saying, you know, if he's sort of in control of the all the album concepts or, or whatever, and he's like, well, I've reviewed everybody's contributions. And, <laughs> and I choose mine. Mine are really the best. So um, I really like mine. Like, of course you're going to mm-hmm. like yours. We also have the conundrum that Paul's in, in that, you know, that the guys were like, sit down. And then he, they were like, the next day they were like, where are, why aren't you? producing so it it kind of was such a catch-22 for Paul where he right you know was both supposed to step into this role because they needed somebody to and then when he was too in this role that it was annoying to them so it's a very difficult position for him because George was supposed to present it you for always being on his back he did resent it but you see for instance on on Abbey Road I was beginning to get too producery for everyone George Martin was the actual producer, and I was beginning to sort of be too definite. And George and Ringo turned around and said, oh, look, piss off. We're fed up. Just back off. We're fine. We're grown-ups, and we can do it without you. Fine. So I kind of got, oh, one of those people like me who don't realize when they're being overbearing. It, it can be very, it can become as a great surprise to actually be told you are overbearing, you know. So I completely clammed up and sort of backed off and sort of went, right, okay, I've burned. Back off. They're right. I'm a turd. Sit here. Fine. Okay, guys. So a day or so went by, two days, and the session started to flag a bit. Ringo eventually turned and said, come on, produce. Come on. And so it was like you couldn't have it both ways. You know, you either had to have me doing what I did which, let's face it, you know, I hadn't done too bad. Or I was going to back off and become paranoid myself, which is what happened. Yeah, I mean, Paul's kind of boxed in, too. I mean, you know, as as much as we talk about John Lennon feeling trapped, yeah. who's really trapped? It's the Paul's the guy under the house. One point about the um, Paul being overbearing and an egomaniac. <laughs> yeah, that could have been annoying. But in some ways, I think that John liked that about Paul. Oh, for you know, like sure. One of the things that they are critical of Paul about is actually something that I think that worked with John or worked for John for a long, long time. Um, because then, like, Paul was taking care of everything. And, and you know, Paul see, John seems to like people that are controlling. You know, he, he, he marries Yoko, and Yoko is extremely controlling. She's leaving notes for him. Yeah. When they're at Ronnie Hawkins' house, Ronnie says that Yoko leaves John, you know, notes about what he can and can't do all over yeah. the house, which is insane. All over so Ronnie's Don, house. <laughs> <laughs> these complaints about Paul being too controlling – really was probably a strength for a long time. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think if we're being honest, one of the reasons why Lennon-McCartney worked so well for so many years is because John likes a firm hand and Paul can deliver it. That's right. That's right. And and this actually occurred to me when I was um, looking into Nat Weiss, and I actually saw another quote, which was, John was a bully. John was a complete bully. Mm -hmm. If he could intimidate you, he would just do it for the purpose of intimidating you. 
But his weakness was that he liked to be dominated. So many authors have said this too. Like so many authors get to this point and they go, huh? They're, they're like, well, mm. Paul's always like so dominating in every single situation in absolutely every relationship of his whole life, except for John. Interesting. And then they're like, John is so submissive and loves being dominated, except for Paul. So <laughs> strange. And it's like, okay, how about this one? This is just a suggestion. Maybe just sit with it for a second. Maybe, maybe John wasn't in control in the Paul-John <laughs> right. relationship. Right. John was a bully. John was a complete bully, says Nat Weiss. If he could intimidate you, he would do it just for the purpose of intimidating you. But his weakness was that he liked to be dominated. And then he says, and that was the basis of his relationship with Yoko. Paul has said many times, though, um, it was pretty even. Sometimes he could be sweet and I could be nasty. And, you know, sometimes he could be super soft and I could be pretty hard. You know, like, I don't know what you think it was like, but it wasn't like John was rough and tough all the time. And I was like a marshmallow baby. That's not how it is, people. And he also has a <laughs> quote where he said, you know, John, John, let me boss him around. He liked it. <laughs> Yes, he liked it. Exactly. So this whole quote was from the, the Danny Fields bio. And then he he ends that quote from Weiss. And, and he says, whatever one might say about Paul McCartney, even knowing the Beatles as well as Weiss did, it would not be that Paul liked or likes to be dominated. The idea is mind boggling. <laughs> Somehow that gets lost in the story. So this is the way Paul has always been you know, like driven and bossy. And they all know that about him. But at yeah. this point, you know, it's kind of being weaponized against him. And the hard part for Paul, like he says later, is like he almost doesn't know how to behave if he's not going to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the next trope that we need to unpack is were the Beatles Paul's whole life? Because it's always written that way, that, that the Beatles were Paul's entire life, and that's why he f fell to pieces. That's right, in, the, in, the, in the way that it isn't for any of the other Beatles. Right, 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 exactly. You know, like the, exactly. the idea that he's more emotionally dependent on the yes, idea yes. of the Beatles much more, and he loved it much more than the others. Well, that's Doggett's theory, right? Doggett's little theory is that although Paul technically needed them less, the least of all the Beatles, he emotionally depended on them more. Right. Well, I think that's honestly everybody's theory. And to some extent, Paul plays into this right now. He didn't in the 70s. Like, if you actually look at accounts right. of Paul in the 70s, he doesn't want to talk about the Beatles. He really turned his back on the Beatles for a while. But I, I, I think that maybe he turned his back on them to such an extent in terms of like wanting to separate that when he re-embraced them, uh, you know, he fell in love again. But then there's also a little bit of he's countering the image of, of him as the asshole who doesn't care, who sued his best friends. The thing that Paul hates most is this idea that he's the villain in the breakup because Paul really sees himself as the hero. Everything that he says about this time was, I was doing what was best for the band. I was fighting alone to save the yeah. band. It's like he just wants somebody to agree with him and to run with this idea. 
people concede right now that, you know, Paul actually was probably in the right. But he's the one that was literally fighting to keep the house from collapsing. And it's kind of like, oh, Paul, you dummy. Why, you know, why did you need it? And, and I think Paul is like, because if I didn't stand in that position, it all would have collapsed a lot earlier. Right. But I think this is complicated by the fact that John said, you know, Paul did all that for his own benefit. Yes. Not not for our sake did he suffer. Um, that's paraphrased. Yeah, yeah. But he is literally the architect of this idea. That right, right. That was self-interested. I don't think that that was a strategic statement. I think it reflects what John believes. You know, that John believes yeah. that Paul was not doing that out of the, the goodness of his heart or because he cared or because yeah. he was loyal. He thinks that Paul did it because the Beatles served him very well, right? I do think that deep down, John was like, where were you for me, though? I needed somebody. And you should have cared more about me than the fucking Beatles. I think that authors kind of read it that Paul was so emotionally engaged with the Beatles. But then we've got John saying that, oh, he was just doing that for himself, clearly reinforcing this idea that he doesn't think he was doing it for me. There is such a, a discrepancy in those views. I know. And Ray Connolly mentions that when Paul came out with his album, that John said, oh, he's been practicing that for years. You know, he's been trying to go solo for years. Yeah. And he says something similar in 1980 uh, to Playboy when he's talking about why don't we do it in the road? He's like, yeah, he just did it all by himself. And, and that's how he wanted to do it. But for some reason, he didn't leave the Beatles. And I don't know why. John is confused why Paul doesn't leave the Beatles. And he thinks that maybe Paul is dependent on the machinery or the fame or the brand, the Beatles. Based on his comments, you don't get a sense that he thinks Paul doesn't leave because he's emotionally attached to John or the others. No. You know? Nope. And ever. But and that's a huge deal because at the end of the day, we think that John wants proof that Paul cares about him. Like you said more than the machinery and the brand of the Beatles. Right. And I think that people have picked up on John saying Paul was selfish. So they're like, okay, great. He's a bad person. Check. We've added that to our, <laughs> right. you know, storyline. But they haven't paid any attention to the fact that John is also complaining that Paul doesn't care about him yes. and that none of none of the things he does is motivated by love for John in any way or concern for John in any way based on shit that Paul has said in later years where he's like, listen, I loved those guys. I loved John. You know, I didn't want the Beatles to break up. And so they're just like, oh, okay, I get it now. He just loved those guys so much and they didn't like him. And I think that George sees it that Paul, you know, was more interested in his own ego and his own position within the Beatles Whereas from Paul's perspective, he said, I was saving it for all of us. And I 100% believe that he thought he was doing that. Yeah. This is Paul's time in his life where he can't let go because he knows if he does, everything's yeah. going to fall apart. So, yes, he has to be at the center of the Beatles. Um, and to the extent that he's managing, safeguarding, and leading the Beatles, and that has become his full-time job, then yes, it is his whole life in that respect. 
But on the other hand, he does have a new family, and he has a love for music that he never, ever, ever loses, hasn't to this day. Um, so it's not as if the Beatles were his sole reason for living. It's a ridiculous idea. I mean, not only does this guy start recording his solo debut like three months after John says, I want a divorce. Right. I'm not trying to downplay his hurt. Yes. You know, or his me sense me of betrayal. Yep. Or his, you know, or his anxiety about the future. I think all those are extremely real. But that's a different idea from like, oh, the Beatles were his whole life. He just lived for the fame of being Beatle Paul and the girls screaming. And like once the Beatle apparatus was gone, he was nothing. He was a shell of a man. He had no identity. He had no personality. He regrets. Like, fuck off with that. Seriously. Yeah. You know, this is John's rebirth and Paul's creative death, you know, stamped by Paul is dead. Well, if, if John is reborn after the Beatles, then so is Paul. Yes, and so is then Paul. Paul is reborn in, in December of 1969. Yeah. When he's liberated by his own solo album that he produces by himself at home with his family, who he likes and who is nice to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he continues to make music for the rest of his fucking life. So the Beatles were not his whole life. Well, okay? yes, he uh, said that he liked it as much as doing an early Beatles record, which to me is an extraordinary statement about like how much he enjoyed it. Because certainly we know Paul loved the early days of the Beatles. I mean, I think Pepper that's a was, big deal. Yeah. And and Linda said that was a really special time for them as well. Yes. So it has good memories and good feelings for both of them. Yeah. And, and just to touch upon this idea that Paul was not progressing. I mean, we just talked about that. Paul just literally said in this interview, you know, that it's OK <laughs> yeah, if right. we lose, you know, lose certain people. We've got to progress. You will find new fans. And that is so counter to, you know, what the typical narrative is. Because in some ways, like you said, like the John story needs a foil and there has to be a reason that we're happy yeah. that John is leaving. And, you know, right, right, and that's right. traditionally that, well, you know, Paul wasn't progressive enough. But here we have Paul really countering that. And he counters it in 1971 when he's talking to life and sort of saying, you know what? It, John saw big, big concerts like this is the way forward. I saw small concerts. But, but the idea of progress is always there on Paul's radar. And so, again, it's just a different way of doing it. Well, and also he comes out with an album that, that honest to goodness, is like pioneering in a brand new subgenre of popular music. So go fuck yourselves if you're like, he wasn't progressive. Right, right, right. Can we just stop that? Like, let's kill that stupid idea. Right. I don't want to read one more goddamn Beatle book that says that poison. That's right. Because if we look at McCartney and Ram as like the prototypical indie uh, albums, then they were revolutionary in their way too. So this just has to do with how those albums were spun, how Paul was spun, but we're far enough away right now that we can say that, mm, no, you know what? That was just spin. That was that, just gaslighting right. of Paul McCartney. Okay, so let's circle back to the Beatles. It's not that Paul needed them more emotionally. It's that the role that the Beatles played to George, Ringo, and John is hugely underplayed. It's just that these guys are better at posturing and saying, you know what? I wanted to go on my own. Yeah. Paul was the only one that was like, no, I wanted to save it. It was a beautiful thing. Why were we blowing up a beautiful thing? And Paul doesn't ever want to uh, denigrate the Beatles. 
one of the the Rolling Stone breakup articles actually did credit Paul for having too much respect to come out and be really negative about that. And again, that's kind of weaponized against Paul yeah. right now. Yeah. Like, oh, right. he loved it more than the others. He was more dependent right. on the others. Um, it's unfortunate, but, but well, and, and and again, it's like telling a firefighter, "Ugh, putting out that fire is your whole life." <laughs> exactly. Like, well, Jesus Christ! Exactly. You know, and John, John and George and Ringo are sitting there watching him fight the fire for a year and a half, and they're just like, "Ugh, you and you and your big suit and your big hose getting all the glory." He's <laughs> like, "I don't need a gold fucking medal, but um, maybe if you guys didn't shit on me all right. the time." Right, and at the end of the day, the house was saved. You know, and they're like, look at how much he loves that house. Ugh, pathetic. <laughs> Not only does he think he's uh, trying to save the Beatles, he's got these three guys that are against him. And then the <laughs> press turns it around and gaslights him and is like, you're the bad guy. I would just like us to evolve out of this like blame game. Nobody's really to blame because it's all about interpersonal issues. And they all yes. wanted love from each other and they never stopped loving each other. You know, right. and at B, there shouldn't be blame because I don't think anybody really meant it to happen. You know, if I were to blame anyone, I agree. It would be probably the press that went to town with Paul's statement and made it really hard for them to go back on that. You know, because Yoko actually makes this point yeah. in the St. Regis article that bands break up all the time and then they change their mind, but things, the Beatles are so big that everything they do is, you know, has more pressure and more insecurity. That was a terrible paraphrase of what she said. But I think that these other bands don't have the limelight on them in the way that the Beatles do so that they can quit. And then they can turn around and be like, I changed yeah, my mind. No you know cares. What? Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's not this like ego that's hugely invested. Like, yeah. Almost nobody can turn back turn back at some point because they don't Because they have to go and eat shit in public. They do. And so that sort of puts them into these corners. There is this sense that Paul really suffered with the end of the Beatles. That he was like the last one out, that it was his whole world and identity. And I always wrestle with that idea because I think it's true to some extent, but also overblown. Yeah. All of the Beatles suffered greatly after the breakup. Look at them at 73, 74, 75. I mean, they're all kind of a mess. Yes. And actually, Paul is doing better at that yeah. time. But Paul suffered more immediately. And so this concept of the Beatles being his whole world needs to be reframed. Because it's almost positioned as a fault. Like he was dependent on them. You know, the power, the fame, the, the boys club. And I don't think that's the real issue here. What I think is true is that by the time that this was all happening, Paul was so deeply imprinted on the Beatles that his DNA was so ingrained in the Beatles, like it, it was all fused together. You know, I mean, of course, John was infused yeah. as well, Ringo and George as well, but Paul and John were the architects of the dream of the Beatles. And, you know, it's the same with Apple. Paul was so invested in Apple. Apple staff say that he was the original boss. And so it's not that he needed the machinery or the guys. It's the fact that the Beatles were him. They were almost a reflection of him brought to life. And that separating from the Beatles meant almost turning his back on himself, you know, on his own identity. Yeah. And, um, that's an extremely hard thing to ask somebody to do. 
Yeah. All year, John seemed to be determined to tear down or blow up what they had created together, you know, which I'm sure Paul took personally because he was the most active at creating what the Beatles was at that point. Yeah, like even the term like Beatley usually refers to a a McCartney sound. There's a lot of crossover between McCartney-esque and Beatlesque. You know, they're, yeah. they're kind of the same thing. And I always thought that was weird. Every time a Paul album would come out, if, if anything sounded beatle you know, like a reviewer would, would kind of needle him about it. And I'm like, you're accusing him of sounding like himself? And I think maybe that's why Paul had to go and reinvent a sound, because he was like, well, I that was me before. You yeah, know, like, right. Abbey Road was me. I'm going to sound like so that. So now I got to... <laughs> exactly. So I need to reinvent something. So you know what I mean? Like, it, it almost seems like, oh, that's pathetic, Paul, that you needed the Beatles so much. And it's like... Well, because the Beatles were really him brought to life more than anyone else. And I think John was so deeply fused into the Beatles, too. But Paul had kind of taken it over at that point, which was obviously part of the problem for John, right? Yeah, and and George George as well. Yes, that's true. Paul is such a huge part of the Beatles' identity. They reflect each other right. at this point. So you can't really take them apart. Yes, yes. Which is why it was so hard for him to disassociate it, with Yes, the exactly. Because it requires him to disassociate with himself, right? It would explain why, for instance, if he took, you know, the other's rejection of the Beatles harder than, than they did, because a rejection of the Beatles is a rejection of Paul. Exactly. You know, he must be thinking, well... John is trying to tear down me and my work that I was yes. doing for our dream. You know, the dream that you actually agreed with me on like a year ago. So why are you so set on pulling it down? Well, you know? and, tearing it and down. that's why I think it's so mistaken of every book. You know, every book frames it as like John was destroying his own band. It's like, well, kind of, but not really. You know, he was kind of destroying Paul's band. No doubt, Quarrymen were John's band, but like the Beatles really were Paul and John's or John and Paul's dream from the beginning. And it was, but but if they have a tug of war going on, struggling for whose band is this, then the band that John is trying to sabotage is not his band. It's not the one where he's in control. You know what I mean? It's like he's sabotaging it when Paul's at the wheel. He's not like trying to shoot out the tires of his own car. He's trying to tear down the 1969 band and bring it back to the 1963 band. I think I really do think that that is what he's trying to do is, you know, change the power dynamic to that where it is his band again. And so many authors treat it like like that is the rightful place for it to go, you know? Yeah. Or one gets the sense of that anyways. No, I think he is trying to undermine Paul's leadership. And I don't even care if that's right or wrong. I mean, I don't, you know, we're just trying to understand what's going on from their perspectives. And so, you know, so I, I would imagine Paul would be like, well, why, why are you sabotaging us, our band? And secondarily, maybe why are you trying to sabotage me? Yeah, I agree. I mean, John says that 67 was a peak for them. They started Apple in 67. And so there still was a joint dream at this point. But John seems to have turned his back on it at some point and and been like, I don't like this band anymore. I want to go back to the 63 band. But I think you're right. Like Paul may feel like this is a reflection of his leadership. So I think when John tries tries to put Klein in that activated such 
protectiveness in Paul because specifically he knew Klein had this reputation made it kind of a battle for the soul of the band at that point, you know? For sure, yeah. You know, when you, you bring up that remark of George telling John, you know I'm as smart as you. You know that, right? To me, that shows that George has his own baggage as well. Absolutely. So I, I think it's not just a matter of like, well, let's blame Paul for taking the older brother role. It's like, well, don't forget that George is always the younger brother, too. I mean, he, so he's got his own baby brother issues. It's not just Paul. Yeah, the fact that he's doing this to John, like, a year later shows that this is an issue with both of them. But as you said, it's also his own personal issue. This makes me think of a story I heard about George Harrison and Paul McCartney doing LSD together. Apparently, they were doing, they were tripping together and Paul started to, you know, go into a bad trip because he thought he was fall, falling down a well. And George kept saying, take my hand. And Paul's, <laughs> Paul was gripping the wall. I mean, this sounds like a nightmare LSD trip, but Paul was gripping the wall and he wouldn't take George's hand. And George told this story later on and he was really angry about it because he thought that meant Paul didn't trust him. You know, like he took it personally that Paul doesn't trust me to catch him, you know, that he doesn't think I'm good enough or strong enough to catch him instead of just realize like Paul has his own issues, yeah. you know, that he's just scared and stressed at this point. But I think the, I always thought that was really interesting. First of all, I think it's hard to judge anybody on acid. Um, That's true. You know, like it's true. Like, don't read too much into you it. You really can't get inside somebody's head. Like, you don't, you don't know what uh, Paul's state of mind was at the time. I mean, you know, people can be scary on acid. Even people that you love, and you know, even people that you do trust. It's like you're sometimes your little nagging little fears that you don't even know come out. You know, and it might not have had anything to do with George either. I mean, it could have, you know. Paul could have been bugging well, no, about something totally not unrelated. <laughs> well, again, he apparently felt like he was going to be falling down a well and was hanging onto the wall, um, which is terrifying. And actually, in the song A Woman, Oh Why, he talks about being, you know, at the bottom of a well. So this is clearly something that has, you know, stayed Ugh. in his mind. It was a scary idea. It's like the, that's but the I ring. Think what we, I agree with you that you can't necessarily read too much into what Paul's actions were, but we can read into George's takeaway Yeah, because his takeaway was not when he was on acid. He was really angry about this in the story. The person that was telling the story said that George wanted to punch Paul because Paul Jesus. didn't trust George. <laughs> that's what he said. I, and so it's like, that's George's issue in some ways that he feels that Paul doesn't trust him or that he, and I think that this wouldn't be such an issue if Paul, if George didn't already have this baggage, you know? That's a strange reaction to have about something that's obviously hurt you a lot. Why do you want to punch somebody who hurt you? I guess that's a, that maybe that's a guy thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but again, like the insult to him is that Paul doesn't trust me. You know, what do you think that Paul would have done? 
if George would have shown up and said, I just wrote something and here comes the sun and they were brilliant. Paul, I'm bringing in three more songs and they're amazing and we, I want to do them. Do you, what do you think Paul would do? I think Paul would say, all right, let's hear them. I do too. No, I, no question. That's a, of course, that is the first thing he would say. Yeah. I, I really think if jo- George showed up confidently and was like, you know what? Love these songs, want to do them. I really and truly believe Paul would have been like, cool, good. Let's see them. He wants great songs and he wants people to stand up for their great songs. And he wants the best songs on the album. He might occasionally have a difference of opinion about what those best songs are, yeah. but I I genuinely believe that he wants the best work on the album. I don't for a second think that he is so vain that he he just wants his songs for his own vanity to displace superior work. And it's also worth noting, by the way, that Paul's objection to the 444 thing has nothing to do with George. It's not that he he doesn't want George to have more space on the album. It's explicitly because he doesn't want John to have four free spaces on the album that he can put anything he wants on. Right. And I've, I've not heard anyone pick up on that issue. You know, the, the fact that, you know, according to Miles, you yeah. know, they're worried about what trick John is going to pull, you know, what kind of Mary Jane kind he's going to put on. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He's worried about the John and Yoko songs and that if they have this freedom, John could put whatever he wanted onto it. Yeah. Which potentially meant Yoko as well. Well, he could say, if John has four free slots, then he can say, well, I am gifting one of my slots to Yoko. That's right. That's right. Or, you know, you know, that we're going to write one together. Although John and Yoko very rarely write together. (laughs) I'm I'm still waiting for those songs. I'm still waiting (laughs) for those great Lennon Ono compositions. And that's a very different issue because... That's understandable because those would not be cohesive to the sound of the Beatles. But again, it's just really important to flag with all of this discussion that Paul's issue is not with George, George having four songs. You know what I mean? And and it's kind of position that he doesn't want to give up those four songs. But it's much more about John pulling a fast one. Of course it is. But because George is popular now and everybody's like, his songs on Happy Road was so great and All Things right. Must Pass is so terrific. Then it's like, if you want to make Paul the villain, that's the best way to do it. Pretend that he was trying to like cut George off at the knees and like handicap Block his him. great career. And just an additional point, given what George has said over the years, I think that George probably didn't want Yoko on a Beatles album <laughs> right, either. Right, right, exactly. It's a, like, let's stop pretending that the, all the Beatles had a vote and everybody voted Yoko into the band except Paul. <laughs> Paul, what's your deal? Why are you so jealous of Yoko? George was the most outspoken against Yoko. He's the one that didn't want to go to Toronto with John because of Yoko. He's the one that didn't invite Yoko to participate in the concert for Bangladesh. So I think that clearly he would have had an issue with this as well. Whereas, you know, and Paul might have as well, but Paul's issue seems to have been that he wanted a cohesive sound. Now, do I think he would run home and try and write better work himself? (laughs) Yes, I do. When George showed up with something, he loves it. You know, he never says anything negative. He plays it in concert. So I think when somebody shows up with brilliant music, he's both, you know, competitive, but also 
loves it because really this excited. is excited. He says that with John with Strawberry Fields Forever, it's like he couldn't wait to get to, to work on it because this is also their joint band, you know. So people bring mm-hmm. good work; it elevates all of them. I think there's lots of things you know that we can criticize Paul about, but at the end of the day, as much as I can, can criticize him, I feel like he also behaved pretty damn well for a 27-year-old. I agree. We tried Paul's personality and found him guilty of being um, full of himself. However, big egos are usually commensurate with big insecurities, too. And he's not getting really any positive feedback from the group. I mean, we can see with what happened six months later with um, uh, The Long and Winding Road, how... Um, you know, emotionally attached he is to some of his music. Paul maybe was feeling um, insecure or disrespected or not appreciated during this time. You know, like nobody is actually complimenting. He's doing some cool stuff, some like incredible stuff. It's like, oh God, you've got another big song. Great. You know? Yeah, exactly. Let it be. Oh, terrific. That'll be the soundtrack of the fucking 60s now. (laughs) Right. There's a lot of discussion around George not getting enough support for his music. Just the idea that, well, the other guys aren't enthusiastic enough about it and they're not complimentary enough about it. You know, Maxwell is a good example that, like, Paul is so beaten down and embarrassed by that that he's like, well, you know, it's not that great, you know. Right. And you even see with like two of us when he brings it into the studio, he kind of puts it down at first. And, you know, like he's got his own insecurities. They all do. And, you know, he wants positive feedback and compliments as much as anyone. And he does get taken for granted a lot in this period. Right. Again, and in the last episode, we made the point that the most valuable admiration and feedback for Lennon and McCartney comes from each other. Yes. So if Paul's not getting any of that from John either, yes. Well, we made a big deal out of, you know, Paul not giving the admiration and approval to John, but it's not as if John is doling it out to Paul. I mean, he's like blowing off some of Paul's major works. Yeah. I he's think- like Abbey road. Not that good. Pff, I thought it was a jerk off. That second side is trash. Yeah, you know, exactly. Let All- it be whatever could be wings. Who, you know, <laughs> exactly. You know, in front of this, like a great work of art. That's massively disrespectful. Oh, yeah. They hark the uh, out the angels come or whatever he said. Yeah, sure. John's a funny guy. I get that. And yeah, how sensitive are you going to be around him? You know, give me kind of a jerky, you know, you have a biting, sensitive, biting take, sense of humor. Whatever. Take the piss but but also, yeah. could you imagine if Paul was like, hey, John, are we going to do that? Julia, mommy. Ocean mommy. <laughs> no, exactly. You know? Exactly. Be fucking terrible. Like Paul be crucified for that. Right. And that's effectively what John does. Not saying that Paul should be getting recognition that the right. other shouldn't just, I think Paul actually gets less because it's kind of assumed like, oh, that right, jackass right, right. is already an ego maniac. Don't feed that ego beast of Totally, this, you know? totally. I mean, I just think that we should recognize how emotionally attached Paul is to his music. Let It Be is a very, very deep song and he's putting a lot of himself into that. And John blows it off like, oh, I don't know. I think he was trying to write 
tr- bridge over troubled water, which hadn't been written right, yet. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it's ridiculous. I mean, it's treated like he doesn't care about his own music. That It's the Beatles and the, the notion of the Beatles yeah, that he's yeah, more yeah, yeah. attached to. I think that idea is sort of stemming from John. Like, Paul has no human emotions. He doesn't really feel or anything. Soul. You know, exactly. like He's only motivated by competition. and Also, you know, like the interview that we just talked about, Paul seems pretty um, even keeled. And that kind of feeds into this idea that we always talk about that, um, you know, he's more balanced. Mm. He's, you know, not right now. We just made the point that John is up and down and in terms of... um, emotions like he's a high one day low the next day and i think that that sometimes communicates the idea that paul's not not as emotional or emotionally yeah. like hurting but i think we're talking about yeah. surfaces of these yes. guys you know yeah yeah i do agree with that his exterior is a lot more sort of prepossessed yes or poised or whatever you know and i think that comes off in the interview but again like we could also pull an interview from 1969 where John sounds, yep. Um, yep. you know, really cogent and, you know, makes a couple of good observations. So we just mentioned, you know, that they all loved the Beatles. Why, if they were his whole world... Did Paul not agree to the 4442 meeting? You know, because this is coming out of that. Paul had the option and he had the ability to save the Beatles. If you would have been like, you know what? Great idea, John. Let's do it. So why doesn't he do it? If he is so-called desperate, then he would just be like, great. Yeah, sure. Right. I was surprised when I heard Connolly being interviewed on something about the Beatles, where he talks about the fact, you know, Robert asked him, why didn't Paul go for that? And Connolly was like, I don't know. He probably just thought that he didn't need to bend, that they would all come around to him. You know, it's it's like, again, this idea that Paul was incredibly powerful at this point, and he did not need to concede. Now, I don't know if Paul was quite at that level of not worrying, but, you know, the idea that Paul was desperate to hold on to the Beatles doesn't seem to have been an idea that occurred to him. As we discussed in the 444 episode, um, Paul's explanation via Barry Miles in many years from now is that he didn't want John Lennon to use that album concept as a Trojan horse to get three versions of Revolution 9 on, on a Beatles album. He didn't want to relinquish quality control. And, you know, the thing is, is that... If it's just a matter of like, okay, you get three slots, I get three slots, he gets three slots, and nobody gets to have in feedback on each other's songs. Nobody gets veto power. It's really like a timeshare. It's not really a band. It really is. It really is. Yeah. And I, I mean, that is certainly not the Beatles that we all love, because I think you feel and the hear the love and the connection. You know, in, in, in the right. Beatles, that's part of what makes the Beatles great. And so, well, you know, what makes the Beatles great? Like tomorrow never knows. Yep. You know, J- John comes in with a super simple idea, one chord, 
meh, 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 meh. Yeah. That's all he has. Yeah. And then everybody pitches in and turns it into something amazing. Yeah. You know, everybody working at full capacity, everybody being creative, and nobody doing it for the back slaps because John gets all the credit for that. But because of, that's the, the team spirit <laughs> that was in the Beatles, it's, it's not about credit. It's about... Bringing the, your best. It's about yes. making the best. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and coming the, up with the best thing. Both John and George benefited from Paul's contributions hugely. One would think that you wouldn't want to demotivate Paul McCartney from participating in your songs. Barry in his book says, this was something the other Beatles had always wanted to avoid ever since John's insistence on including Revolution 9 on the White Album and his anger at the refusal to release the long sound collage, What's the New Mary Jane? The other three Beatles wanted to retain a readily definable Beatles sound. And what, what occurs to me when looking at that is that he says that his anger at the refusal to release the long sound collage, What's the New Mary Jane? And it just reminds me that we sort of tapped into the idea that John was angry that they wouldn't do cold turkey. And what's the thing yeah, that he yeah, immediately yeah. wants to do after he quits is he goes and revisits What's the New Mary Jane? So I think that we were on to something with this idea that John's fuming about the rejection of some of his creative ideas. I mean, Barry Miles is indicating there that all the Beatles felt this way, which I'm not sure what the support for that is because George seems to not really care one way. You know, I think it sounds like George is okay with like taking his four songs and being like, I don't care what you guys do. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and six, six months later, he does give an interview where he said, well, it was a bit of a joke, but you know, he references the four, 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 two idea. So I think that, you know, in that meeting, he may have balked at it, but it, 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 he sat with it and was kind of like, I'm sure it grew on him. Like, okay, I'll take the four songs. If I can just bring mine in and we have to do my songs. I'm yeah. sure that's something that would have appealed in some ways, because again, it takes the fight and the competition out of the Beatles. But in some ways, yeah, yeah, the yeah, fight yeah. the fight and the competition is what makes the Beatles the Beatles. You know, they all have to up their game, right? Well, I do see, yes, and I do see its merit as a compromise, you know, not necessarily a solution, but as a compromise Yes, it has some legs if that's the direction you want to go in. But two things. One is that we don't hear Paul go, fuck that. Absolutely not. Get out of here. Don't even come in here again with that. Next. Yes, yes. He doesn't say that. Yes. He just kind of sits there. He's definitely not chomping at the bit or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like John doesn't push it. He never brings it up again. And he quits 10 days later. So how badly was he fighting for this idea? My objection, number two is like this whole conversation about like, see, see, it was all Paul's fault because he could have, we could have had another Beatles album if Paul had gone along with it, which to, to me, I'm like, well, maybe we could have had another Beatles album, but it's not really a Beatles album. It's just a Beatles mixtape yeah. of solo songs, which yeah. you can make on your own at home. Like, I don't see the big loss. If that's all that we were going to get, right, then right, who cares? Right. Maybe and also... Not for nothing, but that is really crass. Like that is some crass commercialized bullshit. If John's like, well, it's a you know, it's a fake band, and we're we're basically broken up, but we're time sharing on an album, merely to slap the word Beatles on it so that we can sell more records. Then, then who's the motherfucker who wants to sell more records now? Right. It's right. not Paul McCartney. Right. Paul. Paul seems to be fighting for them to get back 
to the closeness. Like that's the kind, I, I think he's holding out for that, you know, he's like, well, that or nothing. I think that John is trying to come up with a solution and it's kind of just a, you know, good enough for now solution. You know, it, it really isn't a good vision for the band going forward. It's, it's like a treading it's water. It's a treading water. Like, exactly. okay, we've all got songs. We, we can't agree on anything. We'll just each have space on albums. And, you know, this is what John says at this time when he's being interviewed. He's like, he's sort of debating the Beatles brand. He's like, well, you know what? If the, the Beatles brand is slapped on it, then it sells more records. And, and it does. I can see why somebody would read into that, that John doesn't care. But I personally think that it's more a bitterness and a cynicism uh, about right. the situation, then John doesn't care. Would you agree? Well, you, I, mean, I think you can, you can potentially see it in retrospect. And I, I don't mean retrospect as in like now or even like December of 69. I mean, from the retrospect of September 19th, where we are at this moment, looking back over the past 10 days, you can kind of in retrospect go, well, maybe that was just John's last ditch attempt you know like maybe he was like okay i'm gonna throw one more thing out there just so i know i know that i tried because what i'm saying is like he doesn't seem super into that idea like i mentioned he doesn't really fight for it he doesn't bring it up again but he says you know what i tried this is still his fault because i came up with an idea for us to work through it and and this is all because he's too much of a fucking asshole that's why it didn't work out. Yeah. It could have worked out if he wasn't such a dick. I think it is the solution that he came to in his mind. Like, I don't want to quite, I don't want to leave the Beatles, but I don't want to do another Abbey Road immediately. So this was to him the best, potentially at that moment, this seemed like the solution. But I also agree with you that he does not promote this idea. Like John could have come back. As you said, nobody killed it in the meeting. So he could have circled back and maneuver to get that in because that's what he does do. Right. But he doesn't. And, and we suspect that he didn't really want that either. That's why it's tied to John being cynical afterwards when he's talking about the myth of the Beatles and the brand of the Beatles. It's kind of like, you know what? You never loved me anyway. So let's just use the brand. It's like Paul is saying, no, no, no. Let's 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 see if we can get back to what where we once belong. Let's see if we can get back to that place where we really connected. I'm sure we can. And John seems to be so fired up and upset at this point that, you know, he gets into this mode of, it was a myth anyways. But that idea yeah. of it's a myth anyways is not somebody who's indifferent. That's somebody who's really hurt right. and upset, you know? Don't you think? It's absolutely true. So, you know, they have this conversation and then Paul doesn't kill it. But the interesting thing is he goes back and thinks about it and thinks, no, that's that's just going to be that's not going to be, a you know, he, based on what Barry Miles yeah. says, he says that he didn't want that. He wanted a cohesive sound. I'm sure he wanted a cohesive process. Um, yeah. And so then he comes back with a new idea that he presents on the 20th. Paul doesn't give yeah. up, you know, for all the like, well, it's Paul's fault. Paul doesn't give up. So, exactly. If you're going to be like, well, Paul had a chance to save the Beatles. All he had to do was agree to this idea. Like. Well, John had an opportunity too. Oh, why didn't John fucking agree to go on the road? Exactly. Tit for fucking tat. Exactly. What the hell? Why does Paul have to capitulate? Right. Right. 
Well, because there's an inherent idea in the Beatles that John Lennon is the boss and the center of the Beatles. And should get his way. And should get his way. And if he doesn't, then it's Paul's fault because he should know better. I really do think, unfortunately, that that is at the center of, you know, sort of like an unsaid thing about the Beatles. Yeah. Well, some people say it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Sometimes it's just just a sad thing. But anyway, so that that's where Paul's at. You know, he's very holding his cards very, very closely, but he hasn't given up because he goes back and thinks, well, John has offered something. I'm going to suggest a different way. And I think that the way that Paul is suggesting is the way that he in his heart of hearts wants is for them to find a way to get away from the business and reconnect again. And ultimately, you know, we played the, the Golden Temple because we think ultimately that is what John wanted to, to your point, John abandons this idea pretty quickly because that's not what John wants. Paul has been so focused on battling to save and protect the Beatles that he's almost ignored the interpersonal. And I think at some point he just realizes I can't win if I don't reconnect with the Beatles. Like I can't get back to what the Beatles was and that we all love about the Beatles if we don't reconnect on an interpersonal level. Well, and how he describes that um, is is kind of an epiphany. Like he he said he was laying in bed with Linda and he goes, you know what? I know what I miss. It's it's playing live and that's what they miss too. Like, so I think he, maybe he does a light switch, does kind of turn on in his mind at some point. I think know? so. And it's not just about playing live. It's because he says that we're, we we got too into yes, the business yes, and got yes. too far away from what we really yes, loved. By which he means him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, and, and he realizes that he needs to figure out a way to get them away from Klein and the yes. meetings, because while they are in those meetings, they can't remember the thing that they love. Like even in the studio, there's too many things. They're too right. close to the business. So I think that the, the, uh, the performing is a proxy for getting away from it and, and reconnecting on a musical level, you know? And uh, Absolutely. And they do get along when they're playing live. It's not that isn't where the um, the conflicts are. That's in the that's in the studio where he's being a perfectionist and they're taking fifty takes. They're, that's not an issue when they're on stage. Even to that point, like it, even in the studio when they're playing, it's okay. I, I think there's some issues. I think that the bigger problems come to when they go right. to the yeah, board yeah. meetings yeah. afterwards. That for like, sure, for sure, they could maybe deal with the studio if they didn't have the boardroom afterwards, you know, right, and fine right. and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that that's why Paul doesn't agree to this watered-down version, and he thinks through, no, that's not what I want. I know what I want, and the only way for us to win, me to win, is to get, for us all to get back on the same page, and this is how he thinks about doing it. But to, to circle back to the Golden Temple, we use that to talk about how passionately John loved the Beatles as well. Like in retrospect, he looks back at it, mm-hmm. I think yeah. rationalizes, oh, that's why I burnt down the Beatles because I love them so much. And, but I think, I think that people might see <laughs> yeah. that as like, well, John, you know, thought this through and decided that I don't want a, you know, a watered down version of the Beatles and it's, it's going to go downhill from now. Like that is not <laughs> how John operates. I think what he's saying is that, you know what? I love the Beatles so much that I reacted and blew it up rather than having the 4442 meeting because he doesn't really want that either. You know, if we believe, as we believe, that John was as invested 
as in love with the Beatles as Paul was, that I think he was just trying to find a solution, but ultimately he doesn't want that either. John is more of an all or nothing kind of guy, honestly. And that's one thing we do know about him. Maybe he was trying on for size the idea of having a looser Beatles and, you know, but but it's never worked for them. That's the whole point. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, this is really what John or George wanted. But again, if you go back to who John is and we know who John is talking to Paul about having trouble with his ego and his jealousy issues in January. And in going forward, he talks about how jealousy and possessiveness are his, his issues and jealous guy like just these are the foundations of who this guy is. Yeah, he might have been okay with a loose Beatles while it was working for him. But the minute Paul comes in with somebody that is in any way a threat to him, it's not going to work. I mean, it, it's just, I think it's a, a an incorrect analysis. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I want an open relationship, meaning I want to fuck other people. But it's not <laughs> exactly, like I want to watch exactly. fuck other people. They are the least likely to want the other person. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a lukewarm relationship. And that's what we keep saying is that, you know, there's sort of this sense that John doesn't really care. And it's the opposite of that, that John is oh my so God, yeah. reactive. And he continues to be reactive to Paul. And so I think that it's just a huge mistake in the analysis to go in and say like, oh, John was playing it rationally. I hear people talk about John Lennon as if he is cold, Mm -hmm. you know, and they read they read this quote or other things about him and and interpret him in a cold way. He's very hot to me. Very hot. John is all yes. passion all the yes. time. And that's exactly. the problem. He gets very upset with people. He gets so hurt. He reacts and then he backtracks and is like, oh, I didn't mean that. But that's how John is his whole life. This guy that they're describing, this cool, decisive, like Doggett says that, that Paul lacked John's ability to compartmentalize. It's like, what are you talking about? It's exactly yeah, the opposite. That's, that's some weird crack that they're smoking that, like, not a single person describes him that way like everybody who knew john which is not that many people but they all describe him as like you know passionate warm emotional emotional, you know like you know full of love and full of anger and you know it's like we know all that shit about him yes Yes. he would explode and then he would and then he would backtrack and say oh i'm sorry you know i love you you know i love you yes exactly but then and what do they say about paul that he's everybody criticizes paul for being too cold everybody yeah i always i always see john as hot. I, and it's not that I think that Paul is cold all the time, but I think maybe he can switch off a little bit easier than John can. He can switch his emotions off sort of at will. I mean, he talked about doing that with his when his mom died, that he that he learned how to shut himself off. Right. I mean, if we look at how they reacted to their mother's deaths, we see that Paul went internal you know, went inside and just it was him and his guitar for a year. Whereas everybody talks about John, you know, being so external with his pain. And this is just how these guys react. You know, we know this. We have a lot of history. So I don't know why people read into John being cold and thoughtful and decisive and rational to this very highly passionate and emotional guy. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a real, that's a real sort of problem. A huge problem. Yeah. And again, we don't think necessarily that Paul is that 
cold internally. But again, we've got quotes from people saying he's got that core of steel. And I don't think yep. that that yep. means he doesn't have a really passionate interior. But I think that there is a part that takes over that's like, I'm going to do this because it's yes. the right thing. And then we've just talked about the fact that Northern Songs is probably one of the most emotional elements they ever dealt with in their life, like ever. To this day, Paul is dealing with this. And he, he admits that it's one of the biggest mis mistakes of his life is dealing with Northern Songs. And so the given that they lost it the day before is insane to conclude that they rationally made any kind of decisions. They should have never had any kind of conversation about anything right. about the future or believed Amen. anything, anything about the future based on what they said that day. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's foolhardy to have another meeting where they're making huge life decisions, just like on the heels of this horrible trauma. I mean, right. every, you know, anybody, any psychologist would tell you, don't do that. Don't make a big decision right after somebody dies, you know, or, you know, don't move after you, you know, lose your job or what, you know, whatever. Like, that's true. Try to that's space true. that out a little bit. That's true. So it's, it, it, but this is, this, this is the scenario of the September 20th meeting. And I think, you know, as we were saying, both of them are devastated by the loss of Northern Songs. Both of them are deeply, deeply invested in the Beatles. But I think going into the meeting the following day, they respond differently. Like they, they react in different ways that are more consistent with their personalities and their coping mechanisms. Yep. Yeah. And so that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode when we finally get to the September 20th meeting <laughs> that we've been leading up to for a very long time. This is the divorce meeting and we will explore how they behaved what they said, what they meant, and what they were trying to achieve. So please stay tuned. Uh, well, Diana, that was a good episode. <laughs> well, I think so, Phoebe, but uh, I hope our listeners agree. We have gotten some great feedback recently. Yeah, I mean, we want to give a shout out to everyone who's left a positive review and, and let you know that we so, so appreciate it. Absolutely. Good ratings and reviews help others find us. So listeners, if you enjoy One Sweet Dream, please consider leaving us a positive review on iTunes. And also, as a reminder, you can also find me, Phoebe Lord, at our sister podcast, Another Kind of Mind, also available on iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts. And me, Diane Erickson, here at One Sweet Dream. And of course, please follow us both on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at One Sweet Dream Podcast and Acom Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.